five, four, three, two, one. Come on, Barbie. Let's go party. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Now Showing podcast. I'm your host, as always, Sam Houston. Joins again with a wonderful co-host, Lewis Royal, the proverbial Barbie and Oppenheimer of the podcast world, and of course, that's saying up for the Barbie and Oppenheimer episode, the Barbenheimer episode, the cultural Woo! phenomenon that has surrounded everything film-related for the last week. Barbie and Oppenheimer both releasing on Friday, and both being massive box office successes. Of course, Oppenheimer, Christopher Nolan, legendary director, director of The Dark Knight, the Inception, Interstellar, uh, directing a biopic of J. Robert Oppenheimer, the inventor of the atomic bomb, played, of course, by Cillian Murphy, and boasting a wonderful, uh, outstanding ensemble that includes the likes of Robert Downey Jr., Matt Damon, um, that guy that was in Suicide Squad that played the polka dot guy, um, Kenneth Branagh, <laughs> And way more. And Emily Blunt, Florence Pugh, uh, there's a, a million people in it. And we're also looking at Barbie, which is Greta Gerwig, director of Little Women and Ladybirds. Um, film about, of course, Barbie the, the doll, starring Chuty Gatwa, Margot Robbie, and Ryan Gosling. It's a meta comedy. And that was a bizarre both. running order to reveal that cast. <laughs> Why? Starting with Chuty Gatwa. He's the most important person in it, isn't he? Well, I guess so. Um, they made Chuty <laughs> Gatwa straight. Yeah. Yeah, they kind of did. Which was a bizarre choice. I thought we were going to have a gay Ken. Yeah. I thought we were going to have a gay Ken. Yeah. I was excited. So we're going to review those two. Uh, and then we're going to review Ben Shapiro's 45 minute long analysis of Barbie. <laughs> and we've, we're if also doing that. What is it? The Sound of Freedom film? Or whatever it's called. <laughs> we're also doing that. Yeah, we're doing that. <laughs> uh, uh, oh, why the fuck aren't we doing Sound of Freedom? And ironically, <laughs> you should have watched Sound of Freedom. I don't know if you can view it in England. It's coming out. I think it's in October. It's getting a release here. <laughs> it's the... Um, it's been called well, you know, mo the most important film of the decade so far. Yes, of course. So for, for the three people... Well, for the zero people that are listening to this that don't know what Barbenheimer is... Um, Obviously, as I said, it's a big cultural phenomenon based on, on the idea that, you know, these two very different films being released the same day and the idea that you should double build them, which I did do. Did you do that? Of course I did. Of course, of course um, I did. Yeah, obviously, like, super conflicting in terms of the, the vibe. You know, Barbie is pink and, and amazing and um, and jolly and, 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 and terrific. And Oppenheimer is miserable and horrible and uh, and, 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 you know thoughtful and you know all these the very different uh atmospheres do you i've seen a few people uh talking about uh how kind of how much a whiplash that, that has been given by the by the the idea you watch these two films back to back even though of course you know in terms of of money wise you know the barbenheim phenomenon has, has done amazing things for both of these films do you think like watching these two films having such different uh say, i say vibes atmospheres um do you think they're like Maybe that it took something away, or, or maybe do you think that it kind of made them both stand out more? I think it kind of made them both stand out more in a way. I was, after watching Oppenheimer, I went to, to get some food. And during the food, I was, I was like thinking to myself, the reason that Barbenheimer became such a meme and like a phenomenon is because they're two, that it's, they're so different films. 
and it's such a crazy double bill to do. And only when I was in the middle of it did I realise truly how much of an unhinged double bill it is. Like, these films could not be more different. But... The big the big similarity is that they both have, like, massive ensembles. Yeah. And they all both have a million actors that you've heard of, and they all show up for, like, 20 seconds. Yeah. And they're quite existential as well. <laughs> but, yeah, to be true. honest, I think... And- I think watching them together, <clears throat> there is a danger that it does take you, like you out of it. But watching them in a double bill over opening weekend, it was such an experience that it just enhanced it. Yeah. Like everyone was dressed up. I don't know how it was in Ely because obviously Ely's in the middle yeah, yeah. of nowhere. But in yeah. Manchester Printworks, the news were outside the cinema. Everyone was wearing pink. People were dressed up as Barbie. It, myself included, I was head to toe in pink. And it was just such a vibe. It was such a crazy vibe. Even the people going yeah. to watch Oppenheimer, you knew that they were doing Barbenheimer double bill because they were dripping in pink. And it was yeah. it was so we... incredible that I cannot imagine ever watching one without the other now. <laughs> they are forever linked in my we... head. We in Ely there was uh i don't think how many people did the double bill cuz i watched this we were recording this on a monday so i watched this on sunday so that's two days after the film's come out um and when i tell you that even in ely at the 520 showing everyone was wearing pink except for me of course i was dressed for oppenheimer but um aka my work clothes but anyway um everyone was wearing pink and when i came out of the cinema and i was like talking to a couple of my mates uh outside the cinema Three girls in pink that were like probably like thirties, um, just started just just doing like some impromptu dance in in their full Barbie gear for like a solid like three minutes. That and is then, so like, cool. Yeah, and um, yeah, it was a bit of a, it was a strange moment. Uh, I so which which order did you watch the two films? I started with Oppenheimer and I ended with Barbie. I did want to do Barbie that- Oppenheimer Barbie again, but. Oppenheimer Absolutely because it bro. because it's in because it, the cinema that I went to in was in seventy millimeter IMAX. It, they they only have like three showings a day, and the six o'clock one was too late, and the twelve o'clock one was too early. So we had to go for the three o'clock one, and then we were like, let's end on Barbie, and then go out afterwards. So we ended on Barbie, which I think is the right way yeah. to do it. I can't imagine going Barbie then Oppenheimer. I watched Barbie, then Oppenheimer. That's crazy to me. I can't imagine doing the other way around. I think the other way around will be awful. And Damn. I think I'll get into that more when we do Oppenheimer. Like, yeah. I'll probably say more reasons why, like, in detail. But um, I read, uh, what was his name? Um, Stuart Heritage. I read his um, article in The Guardian, and I've written it down here, uh, about the the double bill and he was saying that how you shouldn't do the double bill and how it's whiplash and you know it takes away from the film's over um and his argument about the ordering especially he says uh do do not attempt barbenheimer or at least if you do decide to do barbenheimer please don't do it in the order that i went to see it if you if you take anything from this it's that you should really go see barbie first because otherwise and i'm talking from very recent first-hand experience the effect is a little like having your mother's funeral invaded by a flash mob of parking circus clowns. Damn, that is crazy to me. I would compare it more to watching Barbie first is like having a rich chocolatey dessert before a steak. 
You don't do that. You yeah, have the I'm, steak first. Yeah, but like... You don't have your dessert before I'm so you quirky. That's like, on a first date, you were like, uh, actually, let's order dessert first. No. You, you don't do I'm that. So, I'm so different. You don't do that. You don't have your dessert first. You you have the yeah. main first, and then you end on the high sugar rush that is Barbie. Well, let's start with um, let's start with our starter, and our starter is the what we've watched section. Guys. Yes, let's. And um, let's talk about the films we watched. I have at, so we released an episode like, what like two weeks ago. Yeah, not long at all. I have seen like films and TV shows. Like I'm back to normal Sam, everyone. That is crazy good. That's go crazy good news. Clap. Um. Yes. Okay. Well done. So. I'm going to start off. The first film I watched was the film Smoking Causes Coughing, which is directed by, I don't know how to pronounce the name, Quentin Depoe, I think. The same guy that directed Deerskin, which you absolutely love. Oh, yes, um, I did. Yes. And I absolutely loved as well. Maybe slightly less than you. But I tell you, I love Smoking Causes Coughing a lot more. Smoking Causes Coughing is amazing. It's a. It's very short. It's about like 75, 80 minutes uh, French film about a, um, it's, it's a kind of tongue in, well, not tongue in cheek. It's a, it's a parody superhero film kind of thing about a group of superheroes called the Tobacco Force who use the different, um, parts of the cigarette to in hurt their bad guys. Like one of them is nicotine and one of them is, you know, each of these different things. One of them is mercury. And then, um, they can like come together to, uh, give their, um, enemies cancer. Uh, and whilst uh, it does this, you know, there's the, you know, it has that, that ongoing story out of them trying to fight some kind of big bad and then trying to like, um, get some team cohesion and all this stuff. Um, there's also, uh, a lot of kind of like flashback other stories because the characters are all sitting around telling each other scary stories and it goes into like a full 15, 20 minute section of each of the stories. So it's like a bit of a kind of anthology as well. Um, just really, really funny. Very different, you know. Um, I just found it, it was just, it was just a breath of fresh air, which is ironic, you know. But, um, yeah, very good. Strongly recommend it. I did, uh, I did want to watch it. It did sound good. Yeah, yeah, I would recommend it. Especially seeing as you, um, as you love this game. Um, next up is a film on Letterboxd, um, that has 10 viewers, including Ooh. myself. Um, you're such a hipster. It is the film Makeup directed by Hugo Andre. I mentioned it last week, um, or last episode, that I was going to watch it. And, um, yeah, again, I'm not sure if I'm going to be doing an interview with the director at some point, so maybe I won't go too much in depth because I'm discussing it with him. Um, but essentially, one of my very close friend's um, cousins uh, directed it. Um, but it's released on um, Apple TV to purchase, and I think YouTube to purchase, and I think Amazon, you can buy it, rent it as well. Um, a film about a um, someone that is uh, a very introverted food critic who meets up with um, a closeted drag queen, starts to live with them, um, and like slowly comes out of his shell. Um, whilst you know you 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 see the um, the way in which the the drag queen is. is uh, kind of excluded from his uh, real life or his professional life due to his, you know, um, his personal interests. Um, and yeah, I mean, I'm, I can't truly speak so honestly about it because I have, you know, a conflict of interest. Um, 
but I will say that uh, I came into it expecting so much of a, of a student film, essentially, is what I, I expected, you know, knowing the, the context of it. But what, what I found was that the, it didn't feel like that at all. It really did feel like a proper uh, production. And specifically, uh, the lead performance, uh, by, well, actually not the lead performance, the supporting performance, sorry, by Hugo uh, himself, I thought was actually really strong. I thought his accent was wonderful. thought he played it wonderfully. And I think the cinematography was really, really strong as well. So I will give that recommendation. I will say that everyone should give you that a view. One of the big films I watched was 2016 film Julia DeCorno's Raw, which you've obviously seen. Yeah. I haven't seen. I love Tatan, her next film, but I haven't seen Raw. I remember you saying that you think Raw was better. I, I don't necessarily know if I agree with that. I don't remember um, saying that. But oh, um, it's it's amazing though. It is and amazing. It is. I don't remember saying truly, that. I don't know if I still agree with that. Truly depraved at points. You know? Yes. Um, People describe this as a new French extremity. I think this is post French extremity. I think this is kind of influenced by that. Um, but if you want to include it in that, you know, that's up to you. It's a very malleable term. But yeah, having the story of uh, a vegetarian go to veterinary school, um, taste has to, has to eat kidney and, uh, for, for some initiation and begins to get a taste for, for, for meat and, and raw meat and, and flesh and such. Um, much like much of the films in the New Extremity, not played uh, in the traditional horror sense. You know, there's not this kind of sense of foreboding or or this kind of uh, over-the-top dramatic music. It's all played very drama-esque, you know. And I think that gives it a sense of authenticity that really pushes forward the depravity in certain scenes. I mean, there's one scene, um, you know, when you see the video of that thing that happened the night before, that, that really actually kind of did me in, really um, actually disturbed me. Uh, as I keep saying the word, um, but yeah, massive, massive recommendation for Raw. Loved that. Uh, rewatch Billy Joe Malkovich, which is um, one of my favorite films. Um, every time I watch it, I just realize how how good it is. I think I, I love it a little bit more each time. Um, yeah, amazing. Uh, all the performances, especially. Or it's probably one that, alongside you know, obviously Baby is my favorite film. Them two, are the films with probably the strongest ensembles I, I've ever seen. I watched the James Bond film You Only Live Twice because I fancied watching something campy. Um, Can you please was, tell um, the world how incredible I was at that, by the way? At what? When you sent me a photo of the screen and said, what film am I watching? Oh my god, yeah. I just sent me like a random screencast, like a random <laughs> scene of that. You, can barely, you can't even see James Bond in it. It's just like a random screenshot of um, like the, the characters at a distance from a, in a sauna. And then you were like, is it Bond? Is it You Only Live Twice? I was like, fucking hell. <laughs> um, I was so proud yeah, of myself. Very... That is the coolest thing I've ever done. Yeah. I I don't think I like James old James Bond like you like old James Bond. I think I'm becoming, I'm learning that. there There is some fun in a lot of them. Um, and it's all, very, it's all very campy and enjoyable. Um, but I don't know if I want to watch more, you know. I think I probably need to, like, go through the good ones. Like, I need to watch Doctor No and GoldenEye and stuff like that. Um, but watching, you know, um, The Spy. It was The Spy Love Me. What was the film that we saw in um, the cinema together? Oh, I think it was Live and Let Die. Uh, it might have been. Uh, it was definitely a Roger Moore one. Is a Roger Moore one, and then now watching this, um, yeah, I mean, it's kind of campy fun. That I don't know, it's 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 not fun enough to justify my my two hours of attention. And also, this one's very racist. Um, 
Yeah, quite very, quite very a few of them are. In. The, is it the least, is it the one where Sean Connery literally has prosthetics to make him look Asian? Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, it, it's just straight up racist. Actually. Yeah, it is. It is. Yeah. It was a different time. Um, <laughs> I also watched some some TV shows. I watched um, Mulligan, which is uh, I think I might mention it last week, but I completely I finished it. Um, which is a animated uh, adult animated sh- a series on Netflix about um, a post-apocalyptic world where aliens have, 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 have taken over the world and one uh, kind of jock type baseball player um, manages to like save them, save the world, kills the last of the aliens, whatever. Um, and therefore he is re- rewarded by becoming president of the, the United States. But he's an absolute idiot and he's only ruling over like 2,000 people. And... Um, yeah, I, I watched the first couple of episodes and I thought it's a very interesting concept. You know, I, I quite like the voice cast and, um, yeah, it set up quite a nice world. And then it proceeded to do absolutely nothing with it for the next ep- eight episodes and somehow turned a very unique and interesting premise into, you know, just kind of very bland, you know, level of kind of American dad B sort of stories. You know, it just, it just did absolutely nothing with it. There's a problem with, with Netflix oversaturation for adult anime TV series. They don't really seem to care how good the quality is. They just want to get as many out as possible because there's about a million on there. Um, <clears throat> and I guess people eat up. They've made about 30 series of Big Mouth. But um, yeah, Mulligan, give it a miss. But if you want to watch an adult anime TV series, hop over to Disney Plus and, and watch Solar Opposites because I hadn't watched it. I put it off for a while. It's Justin Roiland's other project that isn't Rick and Morty. Um, and I think it it's it is is better. This definitely, from my opinion, better than 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 Rick and Morty. Um, the a plot is good, very strong, very funny. You really connect with the characters. It's a lot takes itself a lot less seriously than Rick and Morty does. It's a lot more, um, you know, uh, self contained, like kind of fun adventures. But the B plot of the wall is amazing. I become obsessed with it and takes itself ultra seriously it's not very funny there's a couple funny moments but it's all about you know i'm super you know engrossed in the world i'm super excited about seeing what comes next in the next series especially you know now we've got rid of 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 roiland you know um yeah so where it goes with that it's just wonderful if you obviously haven't seen it um basically it's a it's a show about a, a group of aliens um who live on earth and one of them the little kid character um starts shrinking down um like people that piss him off just in like their everyday life and just like puts them inside like a, a massive like ant farm terrarium thing in his wall and they like slowly like start to like create a civilization they're like taught they have like revolutions and stuff it's very very cool um and i watched two reality shows which is not really like me um, that isn't like you at I all i was cooking with cannabis oh that's like uh you. cooking with, cooked with cannabis which is a uh, uh, a cooking show which is it's again doesn't take itself very seriously a bit cheesy but good fun if you're into that kind of thing but one thing i absolutely loved was drink masters which is like great british bake-off style format with cocktails and when you say cocktail you know you're thinking you know a long iced tea or or an espresso martini these people they have like three hours to make each drink and they are so high level they are so high concept they have all of these um, you know, different textural experiences, sensory experiences, smells, um, you know, 
edible alcohol, all this stuff, stuff, vaporized alcohol, all this stuff. And it's these amazing creations. I was absolutely fascinated. Obviously, I, you know, I'm a bartender and I'm quite interested in cocktails in general. And yeah, it's so interesting. I even think you, someone that's not like super interested in it, it's just, it's Americans, they know how to do this kind of reality TV. They know how to keep you on your toes and, um, and root, get you rooting for, um, for your, whoever you want. So I'm a team towel for life. And, uh, yeah. Love that. What about you? I've watched, well, you know, I wasn't going to talk about this, but now that you've spoken about reality <laughs> TV, there's something that I want to talk about. And that's, I started watching this reality TV show called, Oh my god, what's it called? Oh my god! Right, I'll come back this to is, it. Uh, good. This is great this content. Is <laughs> I'm sorry. Um, oh oh my... yeah, I also rewatched June. Yes, I'll start with the films while I figure out what the reality show I watched was. Um, so I obviously Mission Impossible Seven came out this week, and um, right to catch up with it because the trailers did look great. Like the stun. Sorry, have you seen the new Mission Impossible? I have. Do you want to do that as like a mini review before before Barbenheimer? Yeah, sure. I'll talk about the uh, the ones that I've watched, and then I'll give a mini review for Mission Impossible Seven as well. So, um, oh my god, my mind is going blank. So, I started with Mission Impossible One quite a while ago, and I'll be honest, I wasn't a fan. It's not great. It's it has its moments, but it's not. It didn't do anything for me. It's just a. It's like a spy action film that was alright. Mission Impossible Two didn't like. Wasn't a fan of. It was very, like, not fun. So I skip. I stopped halfway through, and then the seventh one came out, and I was like. The trailer looks really good. I want to watch it and I want to understand it. So I tweeted, what Mission Impossible films do I need to watch to understand Mission Impossible 7 on a very basic surface level? Because I don't want to watch anymore. Um, And everyone hated me because I didn't like Tom Cruise. I said, I want to watch as little Tom Cruise content as possible. And everyone was like, it's Tom Cruise. How dare you say this? I got like 40 quote retweets. I'm a big retweets. Tom Cruise fan. I know where they're coming from. <laughs> I had like 40 quote retweets telling me that Tom Cruise is the savior of the world. Um, and I was uh, like, he, he's also like an evil cult leader, but you know, I'm glad you like Top Gun. Um, yeah. Yeah, man. I, I don't know. Did you see my tweet? That, that My tweet said like the same thing. No, I haven't seen that. Like I tweeted pretty much the exact same thing. Um, you carry on your Tom Cruise point. And I'm going to find the exact wording. Okay. I am. Um, so I and then everyone started hating on me, and I was like, "Look, he's 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 a stunt guy who's good at stunts, but he's a massive prick, and I don't like him. Get over it." But through this tweet, I discovered that really I can skip Mission Impossible Three if I wanted to, which I did want to. So I watched Rogue Nation. Uh, is this the right order? No, it's Ghost Protocol, Rogue Nation. Fallout then Dead Reckoning Part 1 and Ghost Protocol Mission Impossible Ghost Protocol I hate to say it it was really good and I really enjoyed it right it's uh, the stunt have you got the wording of the Tom Cruise tweet before I carry on it's actually not it's not particularly perfectly worded I basically just said I'm annoyed that that people uh, have suddenly decided that Tom Cruise is like like such a legend and everyone loves him um, when we all collectively do know that he's a massive wrongin, and we, we've just decided that like we're not going to pay attention to that just because you know he made a couple 
I think, mediocre blockbusters. Yeah. Um, yeah, now everyone's decided that, like, oh, he's such a legend again. He is still a, a, a horrible, vindictive guy. He is. Again, he's in a cult, and he knows where fucking Dave Miscavige's wife's body, body's bar- body is buried, allegedly. Um, yeah, I don't yeah. know, it pisses me off. It does, know, it's really that, annoying. Like, everyone to ignore that he's a cunt. I was like, he's, I don't want to watch any Tom Cruise uh, content. And everyone was like, you're a, you, someone, someone called me the arsler which was fun. I was like, these are Tom Cruise, the movies. What is wrong with you? And I was like, okay, chill. When you said that at first, I thought you, I don't know why my brain thought you meant racist. <laughs> racist against Tom Cruise. I'm but, proud. Um, I'm a proud, proud Tom Cruise hater. Tom Cruise, but yeah, so Rogue Nation was actually really good. And you know, these films are really built around the set pieces as we know, mm. and it's it would be very easy for them to fall down the rabbit hole of these are empty spectacle, but they're really not. They do Rogue Nation, uh, sorry, not Rogue Nation, uh, Ghost Protocol, and all of them, apart from Rogue Nation, that I'll get into into a minute, do a really fantastic job of building the stakes around these spectacles. So they're not empty spectacles, they're stakes, you know the stakes, you know the people involved, so you are on the edge of your seat while it's happening. And it's really, really good. So Rogue Nation was fantastic. Then I watched Rogue Nation, which did not do a good job of giving stakes to these spectacles, and Rogue Nation did feel like empty spectacle. I wasn't a fan of it. Because Rogue Nation is the one with the stunt with him hanging on the outside of the plane, that I assume you've seen clips right. of, or at least the picture of. Yeah, 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 um, yeah. That is the opening sequence, and it's literally mm. the, the first time we see Tom Cruise in this film. He's running to hang off the end of this plane. We don't know what's in the plane. We don't know why he's doing it. We don't know who is involved in this. We don't know the stakes. So it is empty spectacle. And But because it's such an insane stunt, the film never catches up with that. The film never gets bigger than that opening stunt and that opening stunt had no stakes so it was very meaningless to me and i wasn't a fan of rogue nation rebecca ferguson though is incredible in this film she's really I, fantastic I just, i've just looked uh, at the letterbox page for this film and rogue nation maybe has the worst floating head poster i've ever seen oh god what is it that is just generally one of the worst posters just ever just let me find look it at the mission impossible rogue nation poster it's awful that's horrible also, I as someone oh god, it is horrible. Mission Impossible, that is bad. Someone that hasn't watched Mission Impossible, and I assume I will at some point watch Mission Impossible, uh, but I haven't yet. Um, was shocked to find out that apparently this whole time that Simon Pegg has been some sort of like big action star in yes. these fucking Mission Impossible films. That's yes. no idea. Yeah, it's really bizarre. He is, but he's quite good in them. To be fair, he's yeah, yeah, quite yeah. good. He's, he's a great actor. I'm not surprised he is. Yeah. Um, and then we, not, I wouldn't expect him to be Mission Impossible if I, you know, before I knew that. Yeah, he is the tech guy, so he's not really an action guy. Um, he's more like the guy in the chair. Yeah, but he does do a good job of it. All right. Um, yeah, so sense. I wasn't a fan of Rogue Nation, and I was like, "Oh, is is Ghost Protocol like a, a a standout, best of a bad bunch?" And I was just lucky to watch that one first of these new ones. And then I watched Mission Impossible Fallout, which is really good, fantastic. They do a really good job, again, of giving stakes to these insane set pieces that they do. You know, Tom Cruise skydiving. Stop liking liking this stuff, please. I know. I I feel really bad, but they they do go really hard. (laughs) And it's like, 
he is horrible, but I, I, mean, I, to be fair, I is I the just ki- endorsed Rick and Morty in two that is true. episodes. That is true. So, but you know, it's like he's the kind of person that I, in terms of his films, I hate, hate to love him. Like, I really don't want to like Mission Impossible, but they're really, really cool, and like, I cannot deny that Tom Cruise, as big a dickhead as he is, free falling from a plane. In real life, not CGI, actually doing it like 200 times to get a good take is insane. And I do love that in the film. And like him hanging off a helicopter, flying through mountains, attached with only like one piece of wire is insane. And like I love that commitment that him and his filmmakers have to making these films feel real and scary. Because they do. In the scenes where like stuff is happening, you're like, oh shit, this is like, he actually did this. And um, the only problem is there are a few scenes in Mission Impossible where because they are so committed to actually doing it, when they do something that has to be CGI, it's really noticeably CGI. Like there's a scene in Fallout where Tom Cruise, there's an extended underwater sequence. And it's very obvious that a few moments in that, he was a CGI model. And it really shows because he's actually doing it in all of the other scenes. Um, but Fallout was fantastic. And Henry Cavill was the villain in this. And he was really, really good. And then I watched Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part 1, which absolutely blew me away. It's re- Sorry, you don't do that yet. Oh, right. Yeah, I thought I was doing that now. <laughs> it feels right um, to do it now. Because I've just done the others. Okay, do it now, do it now, do it now. Yeah, it fits with the others. It's kind of like an extended thing. Then yeah, I watched okay. Dead Reckoning Part 1, which really did blow me away. The All of the characters, you get to know these characters throughout the film, and even the new characters get introduced in an interesting way. Like Hayley Atwell's character <clears throat> brings something new to the team. Um, and the villain is an AI called The Entity, and they this film... Every other word is the entity, the entity, the entity. And it's quite funny. But again, the action sequences, the films are built around these action sequences. It's like they sit down and they say, what stunt do we want to do this time? We want to drive a motorbike off a cliff. And they sit down and we think, how can we fit that into a film? And they write the film around that idea. And somehow it works so well. Like, they're they're just this they it looks so good and it feels so real and they're the stakes are so high and this is a part one of a story but it's very unlike spider-verse which i did still very much enjoy spider very much ends in the middle of the story whereas with this one it's very much a part one of two and this has its whole story so the story is they have to find a key that unlocks something and we don't know what the key unlocks yet but they have to find the key and this one is about them finding the key. And at the end, they find the key. And it's all, like, it's a succinct story. It's very long, so it's not succinct. But it's a very, it's a it's a full story on its own. And it, it works really, really well. And I do think that Christopher McQuarrie is one of the most interesting and creative and best action blockbuster directors out there. Um, so I am very excited for Dead Reckoning Part 2. And I want to see part one again. It was really, really good. Um, And then the last few things that I watched, I hate to praise Tom Cruise content, but I really do. I did roll my eyes at the beginning of these films. It says a Tom Cruise production, um, which is really cringy. 
Then I watched, yeah. I, I rewatched the High School Musical trilogy, which I loved when I was a kid. I really, really did. And I haven't watched them in ages. And I rewatched them and they're still really, really good. They're so ridiculous. Like, I'll, I'll kind of talk about this when I get into Barbie later on, but the word camp gets thrown around a lot these days, both ironically, like people saying it's camp when it's actually bad and they're doing it as a joke. But also a lot of people yeah. just say things are camp when they don't fully get what camp is. I genuinely and unironically believe that High School Musical, or the whole, all of them, but especially High School Musical 2, is camp. And it's a piece of art that was intentionally made with camp in mind. It, they, especially the second one, is genuinely an interesting look at camp art and the way that it does it. It's, I know it sounds ridiculous to praise a Disney Channel original movie as camp art, but genuinely, Kenny Ortega gets it. He really, really gets it. And I love these mm. three films. Then uh, the last two films that I watched were Ocean's Eleven, which is a great classic heist movie. It's very, like, 2000s. Um, what's he called? Soderbergh. Is he it, is it called Steven Soderbergh? Is that his name? Yeah. Yeah. Steven Soderbergh. Um, he just, he got this high, like, hyper-stylized, really cool, inventive way to do a heist film. And it works so well. It feels very 60s and very 2001 all at the same time. Um, and it just, it works really, really well. And then the last film I watched because I was in a Margot Robbie mood was I, Tonya, um, which... Oh, I love that film. It's really, really good. And I forgot how funny it was. It's really funny. And it's really well done. Margot Robbie's performance is fabulous. The editing is fantastic. I loved the editing. Probably the standout thing I love the most about this. Um, but yeah, I was in. The, I was getting in the mood Justice for Barbie. Justice for Craig Gillespie. <laughs> yes, definitely. It was a great film. Very well directed. And Tonya Harding did no wrong. Free her. She uh, she has a oh, lifetime sure. she has a lifetime ban from figure skating, and I feel I sorry for so. her. I feel sorry for her. Free her, free her. Uh, and that's everything that I've watched. Oh no, that I remembered the uh, reality show. The reality show I watched is called Claim to Fame, and it's not available in the UK, which is a massive shame. It's about a group of people who all get put in a house, Big Brother style, and they are all related to someone famous. And they have to figure out who each other are related to. And if you, if everyone guesses who you're related to, then you get eliminated. Every episode, they have someone designated as the guesser, and they have to guess who someone's related to. And if they get it right, then the person who they guessed goes home. And if they get it wrong, then the person who guessed goes wrong. So, for example, the first episode, yeah. there was a, a woman who was related to Tom Hanks was in there, Tom Hanks's niece. And there was, um, they did two truths and a lie. And she said, my celebrity relative is an Oscar winner. He's an athlete and he's my uncle. And they figured out that the, the athlete part was a lie. And if this was the best hour of television I've ever seen, by the way, they, um, there was a clue board and on the board, there was a bench and someone said, that's the bench from Forrest Gump someone's related to Tom Hanks. And this woman went, no, no, it's not that. It's definitely not that. And there are loads of people in, in Forrest Gump anyway. It's definitely not Tom Hanks. It's definitely not Tom Hanks. No, 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 no. It's not that. And everyone was like, okay, you're definitely related to Tom Hanks. And she got eliminated huh. and she broke down. 
she started sobbing and she was packing her bags shouting i deserve more screen time i don't deserve this this is so unjustified and then she's like oh my god what's the show called claim to fame and she was like even 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 this person guessed and he's dumb as shit this is rigged. It's rigged. It's rigged against me. I deserve more camera time. And she's like crying. What's this on? It's on. It's on Hulu. It's only available in America. I watched it with a VPN with Mo. Um, it might be available on less than legitimate sites, but it is genuinely the best show I've ever seen. And um, it was watching Tom Hanks's niece full on breakdown. Like she storms out of the the room when she gets eliminated, and she you see her with a suitcase throwing shoes and throwing clothes at the suitcase like this is so wrong i deserve more i don't deserve this why does nothing good happen to me and honestly it was incredible and everyone if, you, if you're listening to this in america watch it immediately if you're listening to this in the uk get a vpn and watch it immediately it's it's absolutely incredible absolutely incredible and that's it other than yeah. barbie and oppenheimer Okay, nice. Um, I want to get into these films. Let's just skim through some news. Yes, there isn't much news anyway. The biggest news I've got is the... SAG, SAG, SAG. SAG strikes. So the WGA, as we know, have been on strike for about three, four months now. Two, or maybe three months-ish. It's about 80 days, I think. Um, They've been on strike for that long. And recently, since we last recorded, SAG, the Screen Actors Guild, have also gone on strike. And... um, this is the most historic strike in about 70 years in Hollywood. It's the first time that writers and actors have been on strike together. Um, production has ceased and on you, almost you, everything. And you think that um, actors get paid enough anyway, so they shouldn't bother, right? Yes, I do not support these strikes. No, I'm kidding. I do. <laughs> I do. I do. We, this, is, this is a podcast that officially supports the WGA and the SAG strikes. The only podcast that officially supports the WGA and yes, the o- SAG. The only podcast that supports these strikes. The podcast of Film Labour Unions. Yes. The official podcast. Yes. This is, this is a historic strike. The DGA have not gone on strike. Big disrespect to the DGA for not going on strike yeah. with them. Um, because oh, because of these strikes, um, no prom- actors are not allowed to promote their films. They're not allowed to go to red carpets. For example, the Oppenheimer premiere in the uk took place the day that the strike went into effect and as soon as it hit the time when the strike started all of the cast and crew left the red carpet and said we're on strike bye which is fabulous um yeah i love it yeah so no promotion is allowed no production is allowed production is ceased on everything because of these strikes oh my um, i just want to say before you move on the not being able to promote your films, the fucking red carpet for Haunted Mansion was hell. Oh my god, yes. So if anyone didn't see, Disney released a film called Haunted Mansion <laughs> in fucking July, for some reason. Which is bizarre. And, um, yeah. And the only people that I've seen were on the red carpet was the director, <laughs> who was doing too much. Yeah. And a number of poor theme park employees dressed up as, like, fucking... <laughs> Like different Disney characters, Cruella like, uh, Ursula and stuff, that have been like pushed down the red carpet, and everyone was like calling them scabs. But I think that's probably some guy that works at Disneyland that's getting paid like twelve pound an hour. Yeah, like, it's definitely not their fault. They're not members of SAG. Like it's yeah, called exactly. the Screen Actors Guild Award, not Theme Park Employee Actors Guild Award. Uh, <laughs> not awards. Now that Guild. is something I would support. 
Yes. Um, but yeah, that was absolutely hilarious. Um, because of this, because of these strikes, Warner Brothers are heavily considering delaying uh, several films, such as Aquaman and the Lost Kingdom, which, oh no, who cares? The Colour Purple, the musical based on the um, play that is based on the film that is based on the book. Um, and they're also considering delaying Dune Part 2, which so, is devastating. this news has come out. The, the news has come out that they're considering it. The yes. news hasn't come out that they're doing it. No. So I feel like they're only... The reason why we know that they're doing this is because they want to get people against SAG. Yeah. And get people against the WGA. I agree. If they if they wanted to push it back, they could have just pushed it back. And they probably will push it back. But the fact that the news comes out that they're considering it is just to try and sow discontent amongst uh, the working class. Yeah. So once again, you know, big corporations try to take advantage of us. Um, yeah. But yeah, I don't care. I don't, honestly, I'd, I'll be gutted if June gets uh, de- delayed, but I'll happily see it delayed two more years if it means that the strike's going longer. Yeah, I agree. Strike for as long as necessary. Delay June indefinitely say, yeah, for all I care. Uh, it makes me sad, mm. obviously, because I really do want to see June, but it's for a justified cause. So feel free to delay, 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 Warner Brothers. Nobody cares. Pay the writers and the actors. Um. um Indie movies, um, I don't know if you saw this, indie movies uh, are allowed, have have contacted SAG, AFRA, um, WGA, whatever, um, and uh, got permission to shoot uh, indie movies during the strike. So smaller productions oh, okay. will still be, and that from, as of, I think yesterday, small productions will, will be, will carry on, but no Hollywood productions will be, which I think is, I think is about right. Yeah, I think, I think, I think that's fair. That the, the issue really is with, is with A24, the issue is with, Netflix and Warner Brothers and Disney, Disney, yeah, and yeah, the rest of them, Paramount, etc., etc. Yeah, I agree. Um, yeah. Um, other news because of the Barbie and Oppenheimer press tour, we have some Greta Gerwig and Christopher Nolan news. Christopher Nolan said it would be an amazing privilege to direct a James Bond film. Um, so fing- he already did one. Fingers crossed. Not Tenet. Fingers crossed. He gets to do an official James Bond film. Because uh, he has said, and I quote, the influence of those movies in my filmography is embarrassingly apparent. Which is true. He's very yeah. obviously influenced by James Bond. Which I really like, because obviously, as we discussed earlier, I love James Bond. Mad I that would... he made the second best James Bond film of all time without having James <laughs> Bond in it. But yeah, he would love to make a James Bond film. And I would love him to make a James Bond film. Speaking of filmmakers who had a film come out on the 21st of July's Future Prospects, Greta Gerwig has said that she wants to become a studio filmmaker. I think we spoke about this briefly last week, now that I'm saying yeah, it. Yeah, that's depressing, man. Did we but speak We actually about had this? a full conversation about this, didn't we? Yeah, I think we did, Natalie, said it. Because now she's making Narnia movies. Did we say that? She's making yeah, Narnia movies for Netflix. Yeah, we already had some And she said that she's scared of it. She's scared to do it. Which is fun. And the only other news that I have is box office related to Barbie and Oppenheimer because several records have been broken. Do we wanna do we wanna get into that or not? We'll get into it for during the respective film or after the films or something. Okay, in that case, there's no news, nothing else has happened in the world since we last recorded. That once again would feel a little bit like dessert before dinner. That is true. How a film's done without without talking about the film itself. Okay. Um exciting. Time to do Barbie and Oppenheimer. Now, quick um, question before we get into this. We've spoken about wh- what to watch first. Do we know what we're doing first? What are we covering first? That's what I was about to ask. Yeah, we actually Ooh. haven't. This is uh, poor from planning. Um, do we do it in like I... Barbenheimer order? Like Barbie, then Oppenheimer? 
But yeah, I was thinking that. Or, or do you want to do dessert after dinner? I don't know. It's up to you, man. I feel like we should do Barbie then Oppenheimer. Because that is Barbenheimer. We're starting it's not off with Barbie. Greta Gerwig's 2023 film Barbie, which is of course uh, based on the the doll Barbie, which has existed since the 60s. Is that right? Um, and stars an ensemble 50s. cast. Uh, and I'll read them out now. Uh, let's, let's try and go for as many as possible. Uh, Judy Gatwell, Margot Robbie, Ryan Gosling, America Ferrera, Kingsley Benadir, Michael Cera, Simon Louis, what his name is, uh, Emma Mackey, uh, John Cena, Dua Lipa, um, Jamie Dimitriou, Will Ferrell, um, Kate McKinnon, uh, is there anyone forgetting? Anyone big I'm forgetting? Um, not that Mira I can... Coleman, Helen Mirren. Yeah, that's it. That's pretty much it. <laughs> Oh, of course, Rob Brydon. Oh my um, God, yes, that is true. I can. That took yeah. me by such a uh, surprise. Yes, and uh, yeah, is about the world of Barbie Land, where Margot Robbie plays stereotypical Barbie. Um, it's a land where everyone's happy and they have the exact same life every day, and they go about and they drink their, their they have their, their tea parties and their girls' nights, and they're all dressed up and. Everything's run by Barbies. Everything's run by women. And the kind of secondary, the subjugated people are, are Ryan Gosling uh, as Ken, uh, as well as everyone else is Ken. Simu Liu is Ken. Um, Kingsley Benadir is Ken. Chitty Gatwa is Ken. Uh, John Cena is Ken. Uh, and they all live these lives that are kind of just essentially for Barbie. They're, they only exist when they're in the gaze of of Barbie and, and Ryan Gosling is the simp to, to Margot Robbie's stereotypical Barbie. Um, when things start to go wrong with Barbie, when she starts to, you know, get some, some abnormalities performing, she decides that she has to make a journey to the real world. And, uh, and that causes some, some joys, but also a number of problems arise. A number of societal uh, issues are highlighted. This is Greta Gerwig's third directorial. I read somewhere uh, that it was her fourth. Third solo directorial. Uh, huh? yeah. I read somewhere that it was her fourth, but I don't know what the first one is. I, I yeah, thought I it was Lady she, Bird. Yeah. Yeah, she she did Lady Bird, Little Women, and this, but then she also did, she co-directed a film uh, okay. uh, with Joe Swanberg, it says name. But yeah, so it's uh, okay. her third film. I famously, I famously hate Little Women. Um, so this film has uh, done fantastically well at the box office and critically. Um, and I feel like, as I said at the start of the podcast, you know, I feel like me and you are the, the Barbie Offline of the film world. It'd only be fair to start you off here. Um, Go Queen, what do you think of Barbie? Did it live up to the hype? Did it live up to the hype? What a question. I have been so excited for Barbie. <laughs> it was so good, Sam. It was so good. It was everything that I wanted it to be and more. It so lived up to the hype. It was. It so. It had such a a a confident voice that it wanted to speak with, and it had such a specific direction it was going in, and it just it worked so well. It clicked so well. I saw it opening night in a sold out cinema. Everyone was dressed in pink. It was a vibe. The cinema. I've never seen a cinema that busy since probably since Endgame came out, and I was at the midnight showing of Endgame where every scene was showing it, every screen was showing Endgame at midnight. 
this is probably the the busiest I've seen at cinema since then. It was so wild. The vibe, the atmosphere, it was electric. It was incredible. And then the film absolutely lived up to the hype. So I don't even know where to start with this. The opening, like, 20 minutes where she's in Barbie land and everything is perfect, I just constantly had a smile on my face. It was genius. It was perfect. It was the most fun I've had in the cinema in ages. The tiny things that you don't even, you know, I haven't watched all of the trailers, so I don't know if these are in the trailers, but like she pours a drink and nothing comes out of the milk carton. Her fridge is empty other than like a cardboard thing that has pictures of food on because that's what Barbie's dream house is like, the toy. It was so, it was full of stuff like that that you just would not think of that they thought of. The production design in this was so perfect. The fact that an ambulance, when an ambulance showed up, it was a van that folds out into a, like a paramedics room because that's what the toy did. It was so perfect. Yeah. It was so ridiculous. And going back to what I was saying about High School Musical 2, so many people say things are camp now when they're not. Barbie is so intentionally camp. It has such a specific... As is Oppenheimer. <laughs> definitely, definitely camp. And um, But it has such a specific way of telling this story it could have done it very in a very cringy way it could have been very it could have been too over the top where it lost the fact that it was self-aware it was very aware of how ridiculous it was which is kind of what makes it camp rather than just bad and cringy it knew what it was doing it was intentionally over the top margot robbie's performance as barbie is hilarious and heartbreaking there are so many moments where you're like you can't stop laughing because it's so funny and Margot Robbie's performance carries it. But then she also has these incredibly heartfelt, heartbreaking moments, like where she's talking to the woman on the bench, who is Anne Roth, by the way, Oscar-winning costume designer. And then the ending, obviously, which I won't spoil, but the ending is so devastating. And then it goes back to being so funny. And everyone's talking about Ryan Gosling in Barbie. But for me, Margot Robbie really is the standout. Like, don't get me wrong, Ryan Gosling is fabulous. He's incredibly funny. But it's a very, to me, it's a very one-note performance. And I love the one-note that it is, but it's very one-note. Whereas Margot Robbie is all over the place. She has the ridiculous over-the-top campy comedy and she has the serious dramatic heartbreaking stuff as well and um and she does it really really well i the yeah. music was great as well i loved the songs i love the fact that there wasn't really a score they wrote a song for scenes um to play over the scenes rather than a score i think that fits the world of barbie so much more um i thought it was a really genius direction to take it in i didn't expect the main like what's the word the main conflict of the film to be what it was i thought that we would you know barbie land we'd be there for the first 25 minutes half an hour and then the rest of the film would be barbie in the real world trying to fix it i did not expect us that we'd only be in the real world for like 15 20 minutes of the film um it's really really good and margot robbie is fantastic and america ferrera is fantastic it's Honestly, it's 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 absolutely fantastic. It really is. It's so over the top and self-aware and ridiculous and camp. It's mm. Greta Gerwig just gets it. She just gets it. I, you know, the screen I saw it in as I say was sold out. People were constantly laughing, loudly laughing. Um people clapped when it finished, which is cringy, but it happened and I'm okay with it. It was great. 
it was honestly, it was one of the best experiences in the cinema I've had. Barbenheimer, this was the end of my Barbenheimer experience. And it was the perfect way to end it for me because it was such a high. Everyone was so like leaving on a high. It was just fabulous. And it really was like a cultural phenomenon. Like I, I tweeted that Barbenheimer is the Halley's Comet of cinema. Like we're not going to see anything like this again for a very long time, maybe ever, because studios are going to try and replicate it, but it's not going to work because these are two films that are very, very different, but just as good in very different ways. And it's, it's just, it was such a cool thing to be a part of. I know that sounds cringy and everything, but it was, it was cool to just be there in the moment and experience mm. Barbenheimer and to watch, to end with Barbie, to end on the high that is Barbie, knowing that everyone in that room had seen Oppenheimer hours before. And now we were sat there watching Barbie dressed in pink. People were dressed, people were wearing cowboy hats. People were wearing wigs. People were covered in pink makeup. It was fabulous. It was really, really fabulous. And, um, you know, sometimes an, a, the cinema can make a, or break a film. Like I think, what if I'd have seen Avatar for the first time at home, Avatar 2 for the first time at home, I don't think I would have loved it as much because when I watched Avatar 1 at home, I was like, yeah, this is okay. It's not great. But then when I watched it in IMAX 3D, I was like, this is fantastic. And the same with Avatar 2. And I think the same with Barbie. If I'd have seen Barbie at home, yeah, I would have loved it. But watching it in the cinema with a room full of people that were just as excited as me, who'd just seen Oppenheimer, who were, everyone was wearing pink, it wouldn't have hit the same. It just hit different. And it was truly, it was a fantastic film. And it lived up to the hype. That's the thing. It's not like everyone was there for the meme everyone was there because they were genuinely excited for it and it yeah. lived up and it paid off and it was worth the wait and it was worth the hype. So yeah, for me, Barbie is one of the best of the year. One of the best in a long time. I think standouts are the hair and makeup. You say that every week. I do. I do. Um, but it's true this week. Yeah. It's true this week. I know there are films that I've said that about and then afterwards I've like, I've not thought about it for a long time. I know that I'll be thinking about Barbie for a long time. I know that I'll want to go back and see Barbie almost immediately again. And I know I'll love it just as much. It was genuinely fantastic. And I said this yeah. to you before we started recording, but I just want this on the, on the record as well. I think that you knew that's how I felt about Barbie because we don't talk about how we feel about these films to each other beforehand. I feel like you knew... Yeah. You knew that that's how I'd feel about Barbie. I think I know how you'll feel about Oppenheimer, but I have no clue how you feel about Barbie. And I'm really terrified because I can I can honestly see you being like, this was just not for me. It was cool that everyone else enjoyed it, but it's just not for me. And I'm so scared because I don't want to be Barbie's only defender on this podcast. Mm. Well, I will say the cinema experience. Um, we, as I, it was, as I said earlier, you know, that was super packed, all this stuff. But the one big connection between Oppenheimer and Barbie is that in both of them, I was sat one seat away from someone that would not fucking shut up. Both films. Uh, when I was sat in Barbie, so there was, so the cinema was absolutely rammed. Someone was sat in my seat, so I thought I can't be argue, asked to argue with this person. <clears throat> so I just went and found a, a seat at the, near the front, which is annoying because my neck hurt. And I was sat one... You know, obviously there was one empty seat, and then there was this like little girl. I thought, and who just talking? I was thinking, like, her mum's gonna shut her up, and then her mum was just talking back to her, just like chatting midway through the film. And I was like, 
I'm far. Too, I was like, well, you know, I don't know, like, you know, maybe there's something wrong with her or something. You know, maybe, but I don't, I don't want to say anything. But like, and also I thought like this is kind of her film more than mine. So like, I can't really say like, shut up. I want to watch Barbie. Like this is kind of your film. You're like, it's like kind of like a seven year old or something. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I actually do think that like quite a lot of like young girls will probably come into this film thinking it's gonna be like like the Barbie animated films are, and like I'm probably like not gonna quite get it. Yeah. So I don't know. If that's I don't really an impact but yeah i had that going on during the whole way through barbie and then like late as soon as that finished going into oppenheimer and i had these like fucking this massive like dino sitting oh, next no. to me in his fucking like gym shark and him and his bird sat next to each other both of them oh, sliders no. up on the chair in front of them and they would not shut up and they kept going on their phone the whole way through the film i was like this is not for you bro Ugh. This three-hour-long political thriller is not for you, man. Like, anyway, I don't know who's holding to go watch it, but whatever. <laughs> anyway, um, so that's the cinema experiences. Um, just to give the, the viewers some some insight, um, between me starting this review and now, my I accidentally spilled water in my computer, which meant that like I kind of I'm a, my mind kind of got I had to get back into the Barbie vibe and remembering what you said. Okay. <laughs> so what did i think of greta gerwig's barbie i said obviously not a massive fan of, of her last work uh, i had some trepidation coming in um but again the trailers look really good and you know i love the cast so you know i had a lot to go off in terms of positivity uh even though i have you know obviously barbie as well it's kind of the face of of capitalism it's kind of the face of you know forcing unrealistic beauty standards so like i was a little bit worried um just talking before we get into to kind of matters of, of plot and uh, messaging and stuff, uh, like you, s- I feel like you're edging me. I feel like, I just want to know if you liked it or in not. In terms of like <laughs> the the visuals and stuff, as you said, the production design is second to none. You know, the production design is absolutely wonderful. Yeah. The way that they create the world of, of Barbie land, it's just so perfect for what you imagine it to be like. It all feels so wonderfully plastic. And the fact that they're all living inside it, it just makes it so much more fun. You know, it's, it's so well done. All the costume design and almost all of the casting, um, all great. Uh, music, wonderful, as you said. Uh, the fact they got Mark Ronson to do it, you know, excellent. The, the, the you know, Tame Impala or Dua Lipa and... Nicki Minaj and Ice Spice and Lizzo uh, and Lizzo uh, and loads of people. I think uh, Sam Smith and and the Gozza himself actually. Ryan Gosling sings a couple songs and they're both quite good. Um, he does. He's a very good singer. Um, yeah, and I will say, and I'm going to stop edging you. I very much enjoyed Barbie. I had a massive smile Let's on my go. face the whole time. However, I'm Let's not go. as positive no. as you are going to be. I-, I will say... Okay, yeah, I can live with that. There are things that I kind of maybe disliked or, or thought were done maybe slightly ham-fistedly. Um, so essentially, the, the, the basic yeah. plot of the film is that when Margot Robbie has this kind of existential... She starts going a bit wrong and she has an existential crisis and she starts getting kind of depressed and thinking about death. Um she goes to the real world and while she's in the real world, um, they discover the patriarchy and, and how kind of men rule the world and it become, and it kind of goes down that route. And whilst the film opens with the idea that Barbie is a feminist icon and all the Barbies themselves, and you know, a lot of people are playing Barbie. They all believe that themselves as a feminist icon. And I started the film thinking, you know, it's, it shows off, you know, 
Barbie is actually a big push forward because it always used to be mother dolls and now therefore Barbie, you know, is a showing of, of women's independence so they can do any job. And I was sat there thinking, this is fucking ridiculous. Like, how can you brand, you know, one of the most like capitalistic, you know, for profit? There's no way that there was any kind of kindness involved. It's just the fact that there's a gap in the market. And again, pushing these unrealistic beauty standards on women for years, you know, this, you know, Barbie is nothing but is, is there's very little of a force for good in the world. And then the film basically comes around and says exactly what I just said. So I was seething for like 25 minutes, half an hour. And then it was like, oh yeah, by the way, that was all like tongue in cheek, you know, you know, the point that I, uh, that's the point. I was like, ah, oh, okay. So I was like very happy with it. And the film is quite openly feminist and, and that's a very bold move. But I find it, it kind of takes the one that I assume you yeah. hated. Well, to a degree, yeah, because I think, again, it's almost quite a neoliberal view of, of feminism in that it, it touches on like the patriarchy existing. Um, and there's a, a, a big monologue, um, from, uh, America Ferreira's character about, you know, what is to be a woman, how it is to live with a woman, how you have to deal with it. And, it's all great, but I feel like it misses going the next step. I kind of feel like it, it wanted to make a very palatable, um, very watchable, very kind of kid and man friendly version of feminism without really like touching. And I know it's a kid's film and I know that, you know, it's a big studio blockbuster, but I feel like it really could have at least alluded or kind of made more steps towards looking at the causes or, you know, the, the, the reasons behind it and, and the system that we're in. I don't think it kind of, I think it makes a kind of general point of feminism good, patriarchy bad, without really looking into the, the deeper reasons why or the kind of effects of it. I just feel like, again, I know it's a film. I know it's, it's for kids. I know it's supposed to be fun, but I think that it's to, to start presenting these ideas in a way that seems progressive, uh, and then kind of shying away from it kind of makes you think that, you know, it, it just was a little bit too safe. Uh, again, I think there is a way, there is a happy medium you can come to where you can do both those things. You can make it palatable and push that message a little. But I'm still happy that the, the message was shown. I'm still happy they pushed it. And I think the way that, that, you know, like Ryan Gosling's character is and the way that he becomes transformed is hilarious. I think it's great. I agree with you as well that I think that a lot of the attention is going towards Ryan Gosling and I think you, I think it's fine for a, a supporting performance like him to be one note. I think it, it helps the film that he is one note. But Margot Robbie does show a, a fantastic, fantastic range here. And the scenes where she's kind of downtrodden later in the film, she's just wonderful, I think. I think really strong performances. But there are strong performances all over the place. So for both this film and Oppenheimer, we're, I'm obviously going to have different actors for both ones. But for this film, I want us both to choose our favourite performance from someone that wasn't Margot Robbie and Ryan Gosling. Now, I will say that I will give honourable okay. mentions to, of course, Chi Gatwa, who I love, but he wasn't actually that good. He was just, I love him. But um, honourable mentions to um, Kate McKinnon, who played the weird Barbie. I thought she was really good. I don't normally like Kate yeah. McKinnon very much, but I think she was really good here. Um, I'll also give an honourable mention to Jamie Dimitriou, who was, was very fun and very short amount of time. Um, but I think my favorite non big two performance was, uh, Michael Sarah as Alan. I think he was just he, every single oh, second he was yeah. on screen. It made me so much happier. He was, he was wonderful. And the fact that it was never really, it was never really like concluded. There was never like any discussion of it. He was just there made it all the funnier, you know, even especially in retrospect. Um, 
there's quite again it's a meta comedy uh and it very much pushes into that and i yeah. like that I, I you know as long as you go into the film you know knowing it's gonna be that i don't think it's that that cheesy at all you know once you get over the, the idea of it you know some people are against meta in general but um I think that's fine. There's a, there's a, there's a joke about Mario Robbie that I think is really funny. Um, there's a lot of movie references. Yeah. Of course, the 2001 opening, it has an opening which is in the trailer, which is like a parody of 2001 yes. Space Odyssey. One of the best parts of the film. Absolutely adored there. Matrix reference is good. Yeah. Zack Snyder reference a little bit cringeworthy. But overall, again, very, you know, great amount of stuff. But there's also a kind of meta narrative about meeting the CEO of Mattel, who's the Will Ferrell character, Will Ferrell's character. Uh, that yeah. goes nowhere. And I understand it's probably like a red herring, but I think that that all the Mattel stuff is kind of a waste of time and seems more like wasted potential for like a late third act twist that just doesn't come around. Um, or at least not the right yeah, one. Yeah, I and agree I think with it that. It seems to, to waste a bit of time. Um, yeah, again, I think, you know, it lets the, the men off the hook a little as well. Um, but overall, as like taking away the politics, taking away my personal thoughts of the impact of the film and just seeing it as a piece of media, uh, you know, it's just joyous, you know, um, and it's one of the most unequivocally, most kind of just constantly joyous films I've seen in a while, you know, just again, start to finish smiling. Um, and yeah, it's such a fun world to be in. Um, but as well, last thing on the politics. Yeah, it makes all these statements, you know, it complains about Barbie and it shows the positives and the negatives, all this stuff. All of the arguments it makes kind of has to come secondary to the fact that this is also, you know, for all the things she can say, Greta Gerwig has made a two hour long advert for Barbie. So for any political message she has put in there, yeah, it is kind of uh, hypocritical in a way because this is an, a Barbie advert, you know? So I think that like, Maybe it's almost like you don't even need to call it Barbie to a degree because I feel like it almost misses the point a little. Um, but overall, you know, without me being a dweeb, it is just a really good watch. And I think that this is kind of almost like easy to enjoy films. Like this is, you can bring anyone to this and they will like it. Um, so yeah, big, big uh, thumbs up to, to most of Barbie for me. Yeah, I kind of agree with everything that you said. I wouldn't. I think that the politics are very surface level and the feminism is very surface level. But I think that's the point of it. Like everyone says that Barbie is a feminist icon. And in a way she is. When you look at the history of toys and feminism, the link between Barbie like in the 50s and 60s and the push to get women in the workplace, the link is directly there. Um, But the way that some people have painted Barbie as, like they say at the beginning of the film, Barbie fixed the patriarchy there's no more misogyny because of barbie i think this film is kind of the same people are like this is a um you know it's perfectly it's perfect like dissection of the patriarchy and it's not it's very surface level in the same way that barbie the doll was very surface level like women can now be in the workplace that's very surface level feminism. Like women should be allowed to work. Very surface level feminism. It's the same with the film. The film is very surface level feminism, which is fine because like you said, it's a kid's film. You shouldn't go into a Barbie film expecting, you know, a political, um, what's the word? Like think piece on feminism and the history of feminism. You should expect something that's very 
pink and fun, like a sugar rush, that well, is I, has a very surface level indictment of everything wrong with the world. Because yeah, that's what the thing Barbie is. is. That you shouldn't go. You shouldn't go into it thinking that. But it does present itself as that, and that's the thing. Is that if you know, if you're just going to Barbie, you shouldn't expect some sort of you know piece of feminist literature. But I think it, at points it pats itself on on, on on its own back for things that it doesn't really go far enough on. Like it does want to be a feminist statement. I guess so, but at the same time, I think it it is enough for a Barbie film. You know, I th- I don't hmm. think it, it needs to be anything more than it is from that point. I think it's just, you know, a, the sugar rush of pink and fun and complete joy and ridiculousness. And I think if it took too much time and too much energy to making a serious, thoughtful, um, you know, opinion on the issues with the feminism that it presents, then it would kind of bring it down a bit too much. I think it needed to be just fun. I don't think it needed to be serious. I don't think it needed to be um, anything more than it was. You know, it's a fun blockbuster for women and for Barbie. And I think that's all it needed to be and that's all it was. And I think that's perfect. It was everything that it needed to be and everything that I wanted it to be and more. I'd rather have a bowl of... Cocoa Pups... Okay, uh, just want to say here, guys. Um, sorry, this has been pla- This episode has been plagued by technical errors. Um, my mic stopped recording. We had like an uh, the rest of the Barbie section. Um, so like basically, we just discussed you know the the politics. What? So obviously, the I, I agree. You know, Margot Robbie's the strongest performance. Um, but Ryan Gosling and Margot Robbie, are obviously, the two main characters. Other than them. Who would you say, out of the, the vast ensemble, was your standout? I think I'm going to go with Issa Rae, President Barbie. I think her delivery was really funny a lot of the times. When she did the, I've never seen The Godfather, do you think you could start it again and talk all the way through it? That was really funny, and I think she had a few moments like that. Like at the end when she said, because it's a dream house, motherfucker, and they bleeped it. I thought she was yeah, really, really yeah, good. Yeah, she was yeah, my yeah, standout yeah, performance. Yeah, she was really good, actually. I didn't mention her earlier, but she she actually was excellent. Um, yeah. Mainly because I forgot her name, to be honest with you. Um, yes. <laughs> um, yeah, that whole scene where, like, they're trying to, like, uh, pander to the, the Kens to, like, um, you know, like, string him along uh, really did, like, throw up an awful lot of, like, concerns myself. I'm like, oh, shit, I actually am just, like, intent- intensely stereotypical. It really, like, started... Um, Gave me a bit of an existential crisis myself, actually. Um, yeah, for me, <laughs> loved. I loved a lot of people. Shout out, of course, uh, to Kate McKinnon, who again I don't normally love her, yeah. but you know she was great here. Uh, I can't remember. If I this might be. I might have already said this. I can't remember if I've already said this. Um, <laughs> if I haven't said this, uh, my standout would be uh, Michael Sarah as Alan, uh, who is just such good fun. Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, he was great. He's not really explained. He's just a kind of there, uh, and you know I think he's he's one of the best parts of the uh, of the film. Just you know him unexplained. Alan just just lovable. Don't want to sound cruel to the guy, but like it's weird that Michael Sarah's old now. Like I just continually think of him as like yeah, it's like even when he was like twenty eight, he was like nineteen. He looked nineteen. So like the yeah. idea that he's like kind of a bit wrinkled and stuff. Like I guess time time makes fools of us or whatever. Time time is, is time comes for us. Um, yeah. But yeah, it's just weird. Like he's just one person that shouldn't age, you know. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. Okay. Um, 
Man of the match, uh, for me, is going to be the production designer, uh, Sarah... What's her name? I just saw it. Greenwood. Sarah Greenwood. Um, who, yeah, because, as you said, the like the film wouldn't work unless Barbie Land was perfect. You know, spending time in that environment, yeah. it has to be something that feels, you know, so, like, believably unbelievable. Uh, and, you know... Everything feels toy-like. The way that they interact with all the objects and stuff, it's such good fun. Uh, I, I just, yeah. It was it, it was a perfect setting for the film. And it just, you know, everything plastic came from that. Um, yeah, I absolutely loved it. So I think the, the production design, you know, I was going to say Margot Robbie. There are probably a lot of performances that I've seen recently that are as good as Margot Robbie's, but there are not many, you know, production design performances, is that the right word, that I've seen that would be in the same conversation as this yeah. in recent in recent times. Yeah. I know we spoke, like, very touched upon this while you weren't recording, but to go over it again slightly, because I've just, like, fallen down the rabbit hole a little bit more, I don't know how Sarah Greenwood was hired on this film, because her filmography is, like, the antithesis of everything that Barbie is. They're all very dark, gritty period pieces, like the Guy Ritchie Sherlock Holmes films, uh, Pride and Prejudice, Beauty and the Beast, live-action Pride and Prejudice, Hannah, which does appear Rebecca, in the film. Yeah, true. Cyrano, uh, Charles II, they're all very dark, like, yeah. real-world things. I don't know what Greta Gerwig saw in her to be the production designer, but I'm so glad that she did. Yeah, because not in the way that she it's really bad, is bad. Anything, but it's just not very Barbie. Oh, yeah. It? Yeah, I mean, the production design in the Guy Ritchie Ho- Sherlock Holmes films is fabulous, yeah, but it yeah, doesn't yeah. scream it's Barbie. Barbie. Like, I wouldn't, watch, I wouldn't watch Sherlock Holmes and go... You know, this the woman who did this production design, she's good for Barbie. Yeah, like, yeah I would yeah. never have thought that. Um, but I'm glad that she did. It's a crazy turn in her filmography. And I was going to give it to Sarah Greenwood as well, but I think I'm going to have to give mine to Greta Gerwig because I think she had she came with such a, a confident voice and a direction that she wanted to go in that a lot of other directors couldn't have done. You know, the decision to make Barbie this type of film was hers, and I think she really perfected the direction she wanted to go and made it perfect you know the um perfected it and made it perfect great Hmm. talking Lewis but um yeah I think things like you know in the animated Barbie films that's just their world they Barbie is the world there isn't any real world the decision to make them toys and make them aware that they're toys and make Barbie land very toy like like the dream house has no walls because if it had walls you can't play with it that was Greta Gerwig's mind and her direction that she gave to the cast and the crew to make this film to me is what made this film as good and as camp and as perfect as it, as it is. So for me, it's got to be Greta Gerwig for this. Greta Gerwig is my Barbie of the match. Let's go. Yeah. Um, as Please I Please tell me your mic was recording that time. Yeah, it was, yeah. <laughs> uh, well, we haven't talked to this yet, but um, in terms of rating, again, for all the for all the amazing visuals and acting and stuff, I loved and I thought it was such a good, such a a, a great ride. Um, but again, you know, uh, it was a little you know lacking in it. Just it just it, it alluded that it was going to take some steps that I don't think it necessarily took. And you know, I didn't think it was a masterpiece of cinema. It was just a very fun, enjoyable film. So I'm going to give it. Uh, I'm going to say. Eight out of ten, which is good. Very good rating. I was, seven and a half, eight. Yeah, eight. that's very good. Yeah, I'm happy with that. I'm happy with that for you. Obviously, 
Um, I do agree with some of the things that you've said, but it's just that I don't particularly care if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. Um, because for me, it is just a, a sugar rush, um, and I did, I did love it, and I do, I do think it's a masterpiece of cinema. Not ironically, I do think that this yeah, is a very, it's a very um, specific and unique type of film that we don't see very often. Yeah. So for me, this is a ten out of ten. Okay. Um, nice. So. Let's cross the divide. Now it's time to, for Floppenheimer. So Sloppenheimer. Um, <laughs> so Oppenheimer again. It feels weird going straight from one to the other, but I guess that's kind of in the in the spirit of this episode, you know. Um, yeah, that's kind. Of, that's the whole point. Oppenheimer is the newest film from director, legendary director Christopher Nolan, director of Interstellar, Inception, Tenet, the Batman trilogy, Memento, Prestige, Dunkirk. And is a biography of the film, uh, the life of <laughs> physicist J. Robert Oppenheimer, who is famed for inventing the atomic bomb as part of the Manhattan Project during World War II, which led to the bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki in Japan, uh, which ended the Second World War. This is based on a biography called American Prometheus, and takes part. It's partly, uh, I say, a biopic and partly a political drama. Uh, kind of the first half looking at how he created the bomb, how he how the the Manhattan Project came together, how they, they created their life in Los Alamos, and also, you know, the more the personal life of Oppenheimer, his relationship with communism, his relationship with a number of different women, uh, including uh, Florence Pugh's, um, uh, what's her name, Jess Tatlock, uh, Jean Tatlock, sorry. Um, and the second half... Um, focuses more, or maybe the last hour focuses more on uh, kind of a series of uh, trials and um, board meetings and such, um, cross examinations, um, which are also scattered through the first half of the film in kind of uh, flash forward fashion, but it's kind of the, the focus of the last hour. Um, three hours long, as I mentioned earlier, um, filmed on 70mm uh, and IMAX, um, and yeah, is currently doing very well in the box office. Funny enough, this, you know, the reason why, as I said, the one, the reason why they released Barbie at the same time as Oppenheimer was essentially to spite Christopher Nolan for leaving Warner Brothers. Um, and yet, Barbie being on the same day has led to Oppenheimer being, I think, the second or third biggest, I think the, the biggest Nolan opening that isn't a Batman film so far. So um, I think so, yeah. They kind of shot themselves in the foot. Uh, this stars a much like Barbie. This stars an ensemble cast, and I'm not going to try and remember him like I did last time. I'm just going to I'm just going to go on Wikipedia, and includes, of course, Cillian Murphy as J. Robert, J. Robert Oppenheimer and Emily Blunt as his wife Kitty Oppenheimer, but also Matt Damon, Robert Downey Jr., Florence Pugh, Josh Harnett, Casey Affleck, Remy Malek, Kenneth Branagh, Benny Safdie, Jason Clarke, uh, James Darcy, uh, David Dashmalshian. You know, like the guy that was. Poker Dot Man. Yeah. Uh, Dane Dehan, Alden Enreich, um, Matthew Medine, Jack Quay, Josh Peck. Uh, I couldn't say all of them. There's, there's more. Um, and everyone's in it for about two minutes. Um, so, uh, I guess if you start with Barbie, it's only fair if I start with Sloppenheimer. Okay. Take it away, Sam. Take it away. So. It's it's not a day for surprises, I'm afraid, as you love Barbie, and I absolutely adored Oppenheimer. I mean, 
That's probably the last word I'd use to describe it in terms of the experience I had. But in terms of a piece of cinema, it was absolutely mind-blowing. Just the... I'll just, you know, I guess I'll say this first. I can't remember... Maybe... I can't remember maybe one film ever that I have have cried harder. I The film finished the... The title card came up, you know, it said, you know, directed by Christopher Nolan, written directed by Christopher Nolan, and then it started listening to it. And I just couldn't, I just started just fucking bawling. And I was crying, I was hyperventilating outside the cinema for like 10 minutes. I just couldn't believe, you know, what, what basically Damn. I couldn't believe what happened in real life. And the fact that the film yeah. kind of presented it so kind of clearly to me and showed the whole story and showed the effect and showed the, the world around it, I just couldn't really get my mind around just the size the scale of of the the horrors that that mankind has produced um i think it's a bit like judas black messiah it's not necessarily the film itself it's more what it's reminding me of that 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 kind of really emotionally got me um which is funny because you know i think of christopher nolan as a as a director that has historically i thought been emotionally kind of devoid um so and and terrible at doing interpersonal relationships i've you know always thought and so to the point where in Tenet, he didn't even bother. You know, he didn't even bother giving the main character a name. He didn't really bother setting up any relationships. He was just like, let's just get to the point of making this great cipher film and like, I'll forget more. Like, I'm not even a bother with the shit I'm bad at. Apparently, he's not bad at it because this film is amazing in terms of, of the script and the person and the interpersonal relationships and the emotion. Um, again, a lot of that is probably done by the, the screenplay but the, that he adapted, but... This might not be Christopher Nolan's best film. You know, this is not something I haven't had long enough to, for this to, to seep in and to think about it and compare it. But it certainly, definitely is, is his best screenplay. It's undoubtedly his best screenplay. Um, captivating, well-written um, throughout and maybe um, a slightly offensive um, uh, Sanskrit portion aside um, is just a, a wonderful piece of, of scripture. I um, I have very little negative to say about the film. It does drag a little bit towards the end, you know. I think, um, you know, stuff that happens, you know, it's it's told with kind of flash forwards towards uh, the hearings and stuff um, that are kind of accusing uh, Oppenheimer of, of communist uh, associations, kind of in the in the mid fifties during kind of Red Scare period. It keeps flashing forward to that, and then eventually the plot catches up with it, and it becomes the only plot. Um, kind of all that stuff towards the end. It, it, you know, I think I was almost prepared to be leaving the cinema, so I didn't anticipate it kind of going on for so long. I think maybe that could have been condensed a little, but you know, I, I don't think it was like a massive issue in terms of performances. Um, what has Hollywood been doing? Not putting Cillian Murphy or Killian Murphy um, as the as a frontman in every film that's made in the last twenty years. You know, the fact it just feels like I watch this and I think, what a waste. You know, one of the best actors of the generation has just barely ever been the leading man. I can, you know, think about big Hollywood or, or, you know, even like his biggest performance would have been in 28 Days Later, which was, you know, not like a massive, enormous film. I know it was Danny Boyle, but it's still a British production. You know, why is Hollywood not putting him front and centre for for so long? Because he is just absolutely exceptional. So early to talk about Oscars, but, you know, if there's anyone that's taking a, a, a step into any Oscars race, well, arguably, you could probably say Margaret Robbie in, in in Barbie, but more so than anything, him, Murphy in this, just exceptional. 
Uh, I think a number of people put in career best performances, especially Robert Downey Jr. I don't think I've seen him play anyone as well as I've seen him play Lewis Strauss. I thought he was captivating throughout. I think he's one of the most, you know, hateable, vindictive villains. I don't actually know enough about the guy in real life to say if that's kind of a, you know, a movie simplification just to have a, you know a simple protagonist antagonist. But I think he is such a, a wonderful villain. Uh, yeah, I thought it was all great. All you know, I think we'll do the same thing that we did before. Our favorite performances that weren't Murphy and and, and Robert Downey Jr. I don't know whether to include like Emily Blunt in that as well. We'll say out outside out of them three, outside of Murphy Blunt and Robert Downey Jr. Um, for me, I, I thought that my favorite performance was was Kenneth Branagh, uh, who doesn't have a massive role in the film, plays Niels Bohr, um, but he is very very strong whenever he's in it. I think that he's just uh, he's like stepping into the character, his his accent and his mannerisms were were just perfectly styled, perfectly uh, done visually. You know, a lot of this is just like courtrooms and, and boardrooms and, and and labs, but it intersects everything with visualizations of, of particles and waves and bombs and fire and kind of the ideas. You know, it's a whole thing of him being the the kind of modern day Prometheus. All of that visual stuff, um, which is all done without CG, of course. It, it just like it adds an extra element that maybe would have the film would have been a little bit too much of a, a drag without it, and it just gave these amazing visual moments. Again, I didn't manage to see this on a massive screen because I'm living in Ely right now. Um, but again, I, I'm you know I'm envious of you having it, seen it because you know some of those, the, especially like the explosion scenes, the nuclear test scenes, um, just visually stunning. Uh, just you know, this is Nolan. I know you know we expect to come to expect it, but yeah, you know, once again, he, he doesn't fail to deliver on that on that part. Um, yeah, it, it did all that it, it meant to do. It taught me about the life of Robert Oppenheimer, and it made me truly uh, just feel the 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 grief and the the regret and everything that he felt, knowing that he carried out maybe other than the Holocaust, maybe the worst thing that humanity has ever done. Um, and it's just it's blindsiding. You know, it's just it's 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 horrific and it's miserable but it's so well written and it's just such an insight into such a fascinating life and uh you know it's such a he's such a good person to have a you know you, you pick the right person to do it because not only did he do such a you know a, a terrible but great thing but also he actually had a, just a genuinely very interesting life especially you know his his earlier life um yeah i, I can barely talk uh i can barely i can barely promote any more than i can, than, than i am right now it's, it's just absolutely exceptional um, and I've slagged off um, Nolan for being perhaps a little bit too simplistic with his messaging before, a little bit too dumbing down of his messaging before. Um, but he, he just knocked it out of the bag here, man. This is just just exceptional. Yeah. Yeah. I am shock. What a shock. I agree. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Oppenheimer is, is really something special. Like, uh, everyone is focused on Barbie and talking about Barbie, myself included. But... I think we're glossing over, and I think it will only be in a few months' time when the dust has settled, pun intended, that we will realise that Oppenheimer truly is something special, and like one for the ages. <clears throat> I saw this on 70mm IMAX, which I'd never seen a film on 70mm IMAX before, and it absolutely blew me away. From a visual perspective, it was absolutely fabulous. The... um you know, Nolan says, and everyone says that 70mm IMAX is the highest resolution that any camera can take. 
and it just it looks so detailed the scenes the explosion scenes with the fire and like you say when it cuts to like particles and stuff like that on 70 millimeter those just look and sound with the imac speakers absolutely unbelievable i think that again i i'm not sure because i've never seen anything else in 70 millimeter imax before but this is the best use of imax i've ever seen you know talking about dune i saw dune in 1.43 imax I've seen several films in IMAX, in 1.43 IMAX as well. This is the film that does it the best. You know, they invented a 70mm IMAX black and white film for this film. And it looks beautiful. Um, and then that's just the visuals. Like, the, the visuals are insane. And the sound design is insane. And like you said, this script is definitely Nolan's best script. Mm. Easily his best script. Mm. And... Um, yeah, it's just, it's fabulous. It's not it's not subtle with its messaging. I mean, the ending is very very like plain as day, simple. Um, I probably there's a very jarring thing that happens in the final like thirty seconds of the film. Can I say it? I feel like most people will have seen it, and it's not really a spoiler. I feel like this is a film where it's kind of hard to spoil, but. I guess yeah. uh, if you're really if you haven't seen Oppenheimer and you want to to avoid kind of the last thing, just skip forward about thirty seconds. Yeah. So in the final seconds of the film, Oppenheimer says, "I think we did destroy the world," and it cuts to modern day nuclear weapons being fired. And I just think that was that was very heavy handed. That was very not subtle. It could have done without that for me. The message was there throughout the film that nuclear weapons destroyed the world and it was a very bad thing that they did i don't think it needed that extra it is it is literally only 10 seconds but because it's right at the end it really sticks with you keep sk skipping if you've want to avoid this because i'm not nearly finished nearly finished i am um it's not subtle and it could have really done without it it was just a bit too like you know, beating a dead horse, we get it, it's bad, could have done without it. If it was in earlier in the film, then I could gloss over it, but it's how we end the film. And for me, I, I didn't like that uh, way to end it. Um, so I could have done without that. But other than that, yeah, I can't think of any negatives. I think, you know, the explosion sequence, are you going to say something? Oh, I'm going to say, actually, my, one of my biggest negatives, and it's actually just, it, it feels, I, I'm even just, I'm sad to even have to say it at this point. But I did have a problem with the sound mixing again. I couldn't understand. Did you? Yeah. But the thing is, I didn't see it in IMAX. And a lot of people won't see it in IMAX. Ah, okay. You know, and the thing is, you need to make a, you know, a film that works for both. And I know a lot of people say, you know, yeah. he, he tenders his sound. He creates his sound mixing with the idea that it's going to be on an IMAX screen. It's going to be the biggest screen possible. He creates like theatre kind of production sound. I watched it in a big yeah. cinema, you know, it's a massive screen, it just wasn't an IMAX, and there were a lot of times where I did struggle to understand what people were saying. Um, not to the same degree that I have with, like, Tenet, but, yeah, I just thought, like, I thought, like, even with this, I'm still struggling a little, but... Yeah, also, I, I didn't have that, but I again, I did see it American, in IMAX. I wish this film was called American Prometheus instead of Oppenheimer. Oh, that is quite a good title, but yeah, no, I like it, I like it being called Oppenheimer. Yeah, but I like it being called Oppenheimer and all that. But it would be a good title. But yeah, I did. I did really like it. I thought the um, the explosion scene was incredible. I was like the the build up to that scene. I was on the edge of my seat. It was more intense and scary even than like a lot of things I've ever seen. It was really intense. Sorry, you saw um, the uh, and then the success sequence. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I agree. And uh, and the build up to it. Yeah. And um, 
when it happened, the first time I watched it, I was kind of like, is that it? Like, I expected so much more, but then I realised that this film isn't about the explosion, and expecting more from the explosion is just kind of a bit silly, because it's still an unbelievable ex experience. The only thing is, and again, this isn't an issue with the film itself, but it, it was mostly in the trailers, and I wish they'd have kept it out of the trailers, because I, I knew it was coming, because I'd seen the trailers, and it's in the trailers, um, most of it. Um, so I wish they hadn't put that in the trailers. But again, that's a marketing problem, not with the film itself, because the explosion scene is great. And then a bit like you said, after that, I was ready to to go. I was like, okay, we've, we've done it now. Um, but then I realised that that's not what the film is about. The film isn't about this nuclear test. It's about the people who did it and the impact that it had on the world. And the, the test of the bomb and the dropping of the bomb is really the most insignificant thing that happens in this story. It's all about the aftermath and the build-up to it. How... You know, it's about why humans thought it was necessary to build a bomb like that. It's about the human condition of like, well, if if we don't do it, they will. So mm. we need to do it. But then everyone was thinking that. Like they're saying like the Germans and the Russians are thinking if we don't build a bomb, then they're going to build a bomb. So we need to build a bomb. And the Americans were saying, well, if we don't build a bomb, they're going to build a bomb. So we need to build a bomb. And it's like, it... it why are humans like that? Why couldn't they just say, we won't build a bomb if you don't build a bomb? Okay, cool, we're not building a bomb. Why did they have to do it? And it's kind of an exploration of that, about why they viewed it as necessary to build this bomb and then use this bomb. Um, and yeah, I think, I, I think, I do think that the film was a little bit kind to Oppenheimer at times. I think he should take a bit more responsibility for building this bomb and using this bomb like the film kind of says um in effect nobody gives a shit who built the bomb only people only care about who drops it the you built this bomb well done we dropped it that's on us and i'm like no no hold on people who built it know what it's going to be used for put some more blame on them yeah a couple things on that firstly the thing is is that i think it, i think that's a fair it's a, it is a biopic, and I think it's a fair representation of, of, of what happened. I think that the film portrays it so that Oppenheimer himself blames himself, but other people, such as, like, well, essentially the scene that you're, you're referring to is that where Henry Truman, the president, is, uh, yeah. you know, kind of, kind of almost boasting. From his point of view, I think he's happy to have dropped the bomb, and he sees it himself yeah. as something he has done. Whereas Robert uh, J. Oppenheimer, who built it, he himself, even though he does say things in the media, I think he himself will always have that regret, and he will always feel that that you know knowing what he's done. I think he considers himself. I don't think the film is trying to imply that that he wasn't part of it. I do think it portrays him as a victim, but I do think to a degree he is in in, in a lot of the things that the the ways that he was uh, treated in the way after you know he is a victim, but. In the aftermath, he yes. also did. He was definitely a victim of McCarthyism. So, you know, it's, it's yeah. But the way that the, you, I think you're right in saying that the film is saying that Oppenheimer blames himself. But the way that I felt throughout the film is that it's like this man blames himself, but it wasn't his fault. Yeah, you know, I do. He's I a do victim, feel that. Yeah. You know, yeah, he blames himself, that. but he shouldn't blame himself. Yeah, and it's like no, he should blame himself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. You know, he's not. not I, it kind of, course, of made it. Yeah. Oh, yeah, obviously, but it kind of, the way that it worked is it was kind of saying, like, he built the bomb, but it wasn't up to him what happened with the bomb. 
Yeah. And I was like, well, yeah, but it's a bomb. What did he think was going to happen? But I always thought during those like, scenes when he was saying that, I never thought that he believed that sentence. You know, whenever he was saying kind of like, oh, we're just building it, it's up to them with it. I never truly thought that like he thought that. You know, I always felt like that. That's yeah. The, the, the line that he, he was, was saying he was just justifying to it to himself. himself at the time of guilt. Yeah. And yeah, I don't know. If but I think as well. That. Yeah. And again, another thing that I, I liked about the film is that it's really like Oppenheimer says in the film and that it's something that he said in real life and believed in real life that, you know, he truly believed that they'd use the bomb and the world would see how horrible a device it was and go, oh God, we never want to do that again. Let's not build any more bombs. Yeah. And I, I, and do I was like, in my, he believed that. I, I do believe that he believed that, but at the same time, and this isn't really related to the film, I just want to get this off my chest, I'm like, how naive can you be? Yeah. Like, how are you, this is during World War II, how do you think that humans can see a bomb that destructive and their instinct is not, oh my God, we have to build a bigger bomb? Their instinct is not going to be, God, that's a horrible bomb, we should never build anything like that again. Their instinct is going to be, we need a bigger bomb. Yeah, and it's like, I, how naive can you be? And that's that. That I, I love that they actually yeah. did that in the film because obviously yeah, yeah. they do that, and then it makes a point of as soon as that atomic bomb was dropped, they were like, "What's the next one? Let's build a hydrogen bomb." Yeah, yeah. And it's like, it, it, it's such a can stop that. Yeah, it goes against. Yeah, what he's like. Yeah, it, it's true. I think there was definitely a, a point. At, you know, in the you know uh, first half of the the twentieth century. You know, the idea that World War One was going to be the war to end all wars. I think people really didn't... People, you know, obviously, people were doing horrific things for hundreds of years. But, you know, a lot yeah. of that was stuff that, that... Like slavery, for example, you know. you know, Especially at the time, everyone was didn't see black people as equal. So they wouldn't have seen it as, like, a horrific thing they had done. It was just, like, part of life. So that like, people were not mm. really used to being exposed to, you know, this kind of man-made um, kind of horror that you would have seen in stuff like World War One, And there was a, there, I do think yeah. you know, there was a belief that it was the war to end all wars, that once we'd done this, that nothing else could happen again. I think going into World War Two, there hadn't been any other major conflicts really between those two wars. And I think the idea is that we, we'd already gone through the wars to end all wars and now this is the second one. And and that one that atomic bomb is going to be so like shocking, it's going to be so horrific that like I, I can see why people at the time would have thought that it's very easy in hindsight to be like oh they were so naive but they have very little to go off and the just the, the severity of it but then also uh, you know it's i do think it's a slightly mute point that you know he's saying oh this is so bad it's gonna stop a war but it you know he still had to do something so horrific i guess you can see yeah. some sort of you know he is a bit of a martyr you know he's seeing it as a bit of a sacrifice but you know he, he still did do that thing it's yeah. it's a it's a conflicting uh, report of it, I guess. I think the film is very much pro Oppenheimer and anti Strauss, and I think that you know I'm assuming history as always yeah. is a lot less black and white than that. But I did also want to ask yeah of when, course on the subject of um, the messaging and, and such when we're in these discussion points. Um, one thing that's been talked about quite a lot on Twitter is that the film does not start a single Japanese person does not feature anything about the Japanese um, who of course are the going to be you know. The, the victims here, you know, over it says, you know, hundreds of thousands, yeah. over a hundred thousand, two hundred thousand people, you know, affected, died. Um, and there's no Japanese people present. People saying that, you know, pink saying that as a, as a, a massive um, kind of mistake of the film, or perhaps, you know, uh, shows the kind of um, white 
uh, kind of the way, the way that you know we see the world through a completely white perspective, and it's very white focused, and it's like, oh, look at these poor scientists, rather than the reality they cause. I personally don't feel like that at all. I personally feel like the film is is enhanced by the fact that we're seeing this through the eyes of Oppenheimer. That these people, you know, even though he he knows what he's done and he knows the severity, it's never really personal. It's never really he never he wasn't. You know, Hiroshima and Nagasaki are treating the film as events that just kind of happen. He's not like on the phone. It's not stress or anything. He's not involved. He he sees this through a very much his own personal lens of just like him living his life. And he isn't in Japan. He isn't talking Japanese. But he isn't seeing their bodies. I think distancing himself from the from the violence actually creates more of effect of, of the severity of it because we're we're distant from it. You know, these people are making these massive decisions that affect the entire of humanity and kill hundreds of thousands of people and they don't even know them. They haven't seen them. They haven't been to these places. You know, it, it makes it even worse, yeah. the, the distance to it, I think. And I know it's a, 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 something that's been discussed a lot and I understand both sides of the argument. However, I think personally that, you know, it isn't a detractor at all. And I think, if anything, you know, this is a film about Robert Oppenheimer and his relationship to the atomic bomb rather than the atomic bomb itself. Yeah, I agree. I think that kind of a bit like Robert Downey Jr. says in the film, uh, Oppenheimer will be remembered for Trinity, not Hiroshima and Nagasaki. That's kind of what this film is. Yeah. This film is about Trinity and the effects of Trinity, not the effects of uh, Hiroshima or Nagasaki. Um, and I kind of agree with you. It is. It. But I. I do like you say. I get both sides. It can be interpreted as just, oh, look at these poor scientists. They had to kill so many people. Um, but at the same time, I think it the film isn't it's not about the bomb it's about the aftermath of the bomb and like i said why they felt it was necessary to build the bomb not why it was necessary to drop the bomb because that's very well known you know the reason that they dropped the bomb is because they wanted the japanese to surrender we well, know this the reason that they that's the reason that they say of course there's also a well, big, yeah. big argument that it's it's all soviet focused you know the idea just they're trying to tell well Soviets yeah um, yeah, but sorry, but, but just, again, that's on, a reason for them to drop it. Yeah, on this subject, by the way, the, on, the, talking about why they dropped the bomb, I just want to take a second. We're talking about the atomic bomb, which is something that I've kind of always had like a, a a bit of a morbid fascination with because I think I'm always kind of quite drawn to like I can't believe humanity ever got to the point where we could do things like that. Um, I want to yeah. recommend. I think I might have even mentioned it on the podcast before, but um, Sean, the YouTuber Sean made a video, it's about 2 hours and 40 minutes long, so it's almost Oppenheimer length, um, called Dropping the Bomb, Hiroshima and Nagasaki, which is a complete analysis of all the reasons why there was no reason to ever drop the atomic bomb. There is no um, strategic, militaristic, political reason why the bombs should have been dropped. And it, again, I think it makes it a great... This is probably yeah. a, dub, a better double bill than uh, Barbie and Oppenheimer is. Um, in, in that regard, because I think like having watched this, having watched the, the severity of it and the people involved and, and the intensity of it, knowing that essentially, you know, a lot of the reasons that are being bound around in the film are, are essentially just um, kind of propaganda and uh, and spiel that was fed to the, the scientists yeah. as much as the, the people. Yeah, I yeah I agree there, but you know they had what they thought was a reason to drop the bomb. I'm not saying that they had a justified reason. They didn't have a no, of course, reason, yeah, yeah, of course. But yeah, yeah, they have said, you know, they thought they had a justified reason to drop the bomb. But what was more interesting for me, something that I'd never really considered to be honest, because the actual dropping of the bomb overshadows everything else. But what's far more interesting is why they built the bomb. Like, why did they yeah. find it necessary to build this bomb? 
like why they found it necessary to drop this bomb they have reasons that they can tell us for that but there's never I, I i've never considered why they built the bomb until this film and that was what was more fascinating and that was what was more that was what was explored more and i think that's what the film was about why they built it not why they dropped it um, and I think that's what makes it fascinating because there are so many documentaries and stuff about the dropping of the bomb and about the test of the bomb itself. But there's not really much out there about the people who did it and why they built this bomb, why they did this to other people. Um, and I think, yeah, I think my only gripe with it is that closing scene that I mentioned earlier and the fact that it does go a little bit easy on Oppenheimer. For me, yeah. for my liking, yeah, I, I, I definitely can see that. And I think that like, and they, they kind of, they kind of painted it as like, oh, this is a necessary evil. Evil. We have no choice but to build this bomb. We have no choice but to drop this bomb. And I was like, this is. It's a little bit soft. It's a little bit soft on these, you know, war criminals. Yeah, I guess it does try to show the regret, the regret later on. But I do think you're probably right. And I think the reason why I think that, like, the reason why, the reason why I don't necessarily. Um, like completely see it from the same perspective is because it's more like the fact that I don't feel that and the fact that I didn't kind of say immediately thinking that is actually kind of more of a a example of why Nolan has done such a good job than anything else because the screenplay and the directing has really made me like emphasize with the guy and lo- like really be on his side so much that I'm like not feeling like, oh it's too nice to him because I'm like oh he's the good guy but he obviously you know I said it's not that black and white, what, uh, black and white you know he isn't he isn't the good guy. There's no good guys. Uh, and he did a, one of the most horrific yeah. things ever. But again, it's just, I guess, another positive of the film that I didn't feel that way. Yeah, it's definitely a, a, an interesting choice that they made, even if it's one that I personally disagree with. It's not necessarily... Yeah, yeah, yeah. What's the word? It's a creative choice that I respect rather I, than one that I agree with. Yeah, I... Um... Like, if I made this film... In a way, I kind of respect Nolan's ability to do that because if I made this film, I wouldn't be able to remove myself from the situation and be like, yeah. let's do this as... as as um, Try and tell this story impartially and make people empathise with the person who built the atomic bomb. I would just be like, obviously Oppenheimer was a horrible person. We need to paint him as a horrible person. That's what we should do. And I kind of respect Nolan's decision to say, let's try and get audiences to empathise with someone who did... But he, the key thing is one he, of the worst things in humanity. Like it, it, the, 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 that's one of the, the key things, really, is that he, he's not a horrible person and he's not a great person and he's just a person that. And yeah, I mean, the, the reasons why, you know, you can analyze it forever, but I think, you know, it's, 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 I think it perhaps, yeah, it's more pro Oppenheimer than it wants to be. Um, yeah. But yeah, it's more of an account, I think, anything. Um, okay, to start us going around in circles forever. Um, I'm yeah. just going to move on to say that I think I, I'm now confident enough to say, and I've been considering it, I think a few different people, but I think now I'm at the point where I can confidently say that I think Hoyt Van Hoytema is the best cinematographer in the world. Um, the run that he's I, been you know, on I, I... over the last 10 years is unparalleled in modern cinema, I think. I think, you know, of course, Deakins, you know, they, you know, his... His body of work is, is far greater in terms of his tank, but right now, if I had a project, you know, there's no, I don't think there's anyone I'd want to cut, cut, uh, get my synthog for more. The last ten years, he's is he's done her, Interstellar, Spectre, Dunkirk, Ad Astra, Tenet, Nope, Oppenheimer, and all of those films, both stunning cinematography. 
Uh, yeah. You know, again, Spectre, he maybe does Deacons slightly worse than Deacons. But other than that, <laughs> absolutely exceptional. I mean, Nope and Oppenheimer being two... or Ten at Nope, Oppenheimer, three in a row of just... just yeah. Ten out of ten cinematography. Um, yeah. yeah. So I, I just wanted to make that call. Yeah, I, I'd agree. He He's trying to think of other people up there, and I, I can't think of anyone... You know, Greg Frazier's great. Greg Frazier, that's the, but, the first thing, you know. If we're talking about, like, right now, because, like, Deacons is, you know, he's the last generation, you know. He's not, he's, well, he's a couple of generations yeah. ago. He's not this generation. When I think of great direct, uh, great cinematographers of this generation, you know, how, how good June and the Batman were back-to-back makes me think. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, obviously a few other things he's done as well, you know, um, Zero Dark Thirty or whatever. Yeah. Um, makes me think, you know, like, obviously he's in the conversation. But I don't think that it holds up necessarily to the run that he, that, that Hoyt Van Hoyt has been on. And yeah. I think that, you know, you can very much make an argument that, that the, if you're kind of going, you know, um, you know, film for film that, you know, probably Nope probably has better cinematography than the Batman. And, you know, this probably has better cinematography than that. And I think I probably would still pick Hoyt Van Hoytema. Um Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I'd agree. Greg Frazier is the only one who can rival Hoyvan Hoytemer at the minute, and uh, but yeah, Hoytemer's been been crushing it. Yeah, unbelievable. Yeah, yeah. Um, outside of the the voice, outside of the the dialogue, just for like for the, the bomb scenes and such, the sound design on that is just also exceptional. The sound yeah. design for the yeah. Trinity scene, I mean, wonderful. Yeah, I mean, like you said, you, no one does design the films for IMAX. And if you don't see it in IMAX, then that is an issue because it should work in every format. Yeah, but. Yeah. Yeah. I saw it in IMAX and didn't have any issues with the sound design. So the sound design throughout was fine. The dialogue scenes were fine. Um, and I thought the yeah. the scenes, for example, like when he's in the, the room and he starts to have visions and it's building up and getting loud and then it just cuts to silence and the dialogue's back to normal. Almost sounds like the dialogue is overexposed. If that's a way, if that's a, the, you know, like how a camera can be overexposed. It's like a microphone was overexposed yeah, and then it just yeah, cuts yeah. and goes back to normal. I thought that sounded fab. And then obviously the explosion and the, the test scenes and the sciencey scenes where it cuts to them, like splitting the atom, those sound phenomenal. Yeah. Um, this really was like an absolute treat to watch in the cinema and to watch in IMAX and especially 70 millimeter IMAX. I mean, get, get yourself to the BFI and watch it there. I mean, it's that, that, amazing. That's, that's why I said earlier when we talked about Barbenheimer that I said I, I just you know I agree with the, the you know like clowns at your mum's funeral kind of thing that I so I came out of this just sobbing just absolutely just just destroyed you know I was it's a hyper fucking ventilating. Yeah. Uh, I couldn't have gone into Barbie you know if if I if Barbie was after Oppenheimer I would have gone home I don't think I could have done it. Um, I think this is a film crazy. really I... needs. I think Barbie's amazing. But again, it's very much, as we said, surface level in its messaging and what it does. It's yeah. quite surface level. Oppenheimer is, is very much not that. And I think I want to be left to think about it after without having suddenly this massive explosion of pink and ha ha ha. Just, I just need a bit of a I do know what you mean. I do know what you mean, but I, I couldn't end on Oppenheimer. I think it'd make me too like depressed and nihilistic. I think I'd have to... I have to go back to to watch the the fun sugar rush of Barbie. Yeah, I um, personally. If I rewatch, but it, I do get I your angle. Do, I, 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 no, before 
Yeah. So if I before again, we recorded this nice. podcast, we th- th- we are just talking over each other again. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Sorry, you go on. I was gonna say if I do it again, I'll I'll watch off on first. Yeah, I think before we started this podcast, I was like, why on earth would someone watch Oppenheimer before Barbie? Uh, why on earth would someone watch Barbie before Oppenheimer? But now I get it. Yeah. Even if I disagree and I wouldn't do it, I do get I do get it. I get your point. Um, a podcaster that I, I like um, from, from HeadGum um, put a, a, her review of Oppenheimer, her five-star review of Oppenheimer on Letterboxd is... Killian Murphy did the thing. Emily Blunt, my woman king. Damon Matt, you're a genius. Dame Dehan, you're all of us. So that's, that's amazing. Um, yes. So I gave my answer. Who is your? What's your favourite performance that isn't Murphy, Blunt, Robert Downey Jr.? Who was your answer? My answer was uh, I would have said, oh, um, Kenneth Branagh. Oh, Kenneth Branagh. Yeah, yeah, I remember now. You know, I'm gonna say. I don't. I really don't know. I feel like everyone is really fabulous. Um, I think I it, he was very unlikable, so it's annoying for me to give him praise. But I think I will have to say Matt Damon because he is really good. Yeah, yeah. I think Damon's great. Um, Alden Ehrenreich, whatever his name, the guy that played. Um, yeah. He's really good as well. I mean, there's loads of really strong performances in here. Um, yeah. David. Uh, I mean, is, is it? His name is. He's really good as well. He's. I, you know, he, he yeah. very much Nazi-esque vibe to him. Yes. Um, I want to ask the, actually, um, the scene question, with what did you think of, of Benny Safdie's performance? Because it's quite... Someone described it as the Ben Affleck in the last duel of this film. <laughs> um, and I think that's a that's fair That's a great statement. way to describe it. How do you think of it? Yeah, I agree. I, I'm not a fan of Benny Safdie as an actor. I just I think I don't... This is going to sound really mean... But I just I don't I, I don't know how to describe it other than I just don't like his face. I mean that's fair, but you don't like Benny Safdie as a director either, though, do you? Not particularly, no. no. But like his face, he just his face just annoys me, like the way he talks, and especially when he was doing this Russian accent or Hungarian, wherever he's from. Um, wow. I just I'm not a fan of I'm not a fan of. I'm not a fan of Benny Safdie, and I thought his performance was a choice. Um, it wasn't quite as out there as Ben Affleck in The Last Duel, but it was a, a choice, and he's, ju- he's so right. sweaty. He's such a sweaty person. Yeah, he's so sweaty. He constantly looks like he's in the middle of a really hot curry. Yeah, but a lot of the time I think that was on purpose on this film. I don't perhaps, think it's perhaps. Like it always. I, I thought, I, I really liked it, but it's like, again, I also really like Ben Affleck in The Last Duel. It's just like, it's a very out there. Yeah. Um, yeah. It kind of stands much, out. Much like... Yeah, much like um, Marlon Brando in The Godfather. Yeah, 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 yeah. Which is a very strange comparison very... To, to make between Benny and Safdie as a supporting <laughs> role in this and Marlon Brando as maybe the most recognisable role in American cinema history. Um, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, okay. So who's Great your stuff. man of the match? My man of the match is... Oh my God, that's a tough one. I'm going to have to go for Murphy. And I don't really talk about him enough, actually. But um, Yeah, neither of us really spoke about Killian Murphy's performance. Yeah, He's said, really good. Push him to the front of the, the Oscar conversation already. I know it's a year away. Uh, and yeah. his best performance, definitely. And as I said, it just makes me think, I just wish that I'd seen him be front and centre far more over the last decade, last a couple of decades. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's heartbreaking. The performance is heartbreaking. He every single uh, you know bit of regret comes through in that in the last kind of hour of performancing, the last hour of the performance. Yeah, 
And um, yeah, I just I think. He and does. he did make me feel sorry for Robert Oppenheimer, which is a, a big thing. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. there's praise yeah. for Killian Murphy. So is that your man of the match? Yeah, I mean, I, I, Nolan's screenplay is amazing as well, but I'm gonna give it to, to Murphy. Yeah. I I completely understand that, but I'm gonna give mine to Hoyt Van Hoytema. Yeah, okay. um, for reasons we discussed earlier. Yeah, incredible work. Yeah, incredible work. Yeah, um, yeah. Uh, a lot of there's so many, so many strong performances. In there. there was actually a lot of people that could get it. I think I thought Florence Pugh was, was really really good as well. Um, she was, she, yeah, she was very strong. Um, Emily Blunt was amazing in the scene in the like the that room where she was talking to Jason Clark. Oh, Jason Clark actually outside, not Matt Damon. Jason Clark outside okay. of the main three performances. Because Jason Clark, I hated him so much. Jason Clark, and it I was feel amazing. like it's continued just kind of like that dude that's in that film. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, I said to my around. dad before I watched it with my dad, like, Jason Clark's in it. And he was like, who's that? And I showed him a picture and he was like, oh, it's the, the guy yeah. from that film, Everest. Yeah. And he's like, yeah. Yeah. You can say, yeah. yeah. I feel like a lot of people in this film are actually kind of that guy from that thing. Um, yeah. Mad that, like, Josh from Drake and Josh is in it, isn't it? Yeah. I th- also think that Benny Safdie looks like a fat Josh Peck. <laughs> Josh Peck used to look like a fat Josh Peck, to be fair. Um, <laughs> what's your rating for this? My rating for this is similar to Barbie, a 10 out of 10. Mad. I think this is... A very like, different 10 out of 10, but a 10 out of 10 as well. giving up two consecutive 10 out of 10s in the same episode. Um, I don't think it is. Yeah, I think we did it relatively recently. Um... Yeah, I'm gonna give it ten out of ten. You know, I, I, it's become, yeah. it seems like I'm doing that all the time. But yeah, I mean, I, I just love it. I just fucking love it. Um, I really do think that these two films are two films that are, you know, they're going to be remembered there for the ages. They're they're special films for very very different reasons. But I think they are two films that will stand the test of time. I've seen these these two films described as like I saw someone talk about it, uh, it kind of the context that like these are the two biggest directors in the world or two biggest household names in the world, um, and I just I don't think that anyone has the pool that Nolan has right now. I don't yeah. think that people. He are is an IP in himself, with the exception of maybe yeah. Tarantino. Yeah, I think, but not on the same level. Like, there's a new Tarantino film, there's a new Scorsese film. People will go and see it, but when there's a new Nolan film, it's it's a phenomenon. It's oh, it's on another level. I, think I don't think there's watch, a director. I think people are going to watch Scorsese films not necessarily just because they're Scorsese, but I do think that Tarantino has a very similar pull to Nolan in that regard, actually. Because I think people, I think, I think people, so, but yeah, I um, but even throughout history, I can't think of a director who's had the same pull that Nolan does. Not just now, Hitchcock. but like off the top of my head. Yeah, that's true. There aren't many, though. No, there's not many, no. Um, there aren't many that people like... There's a spe- especially, I mean, throughout history, yeah, but especially now in this yeah, age yeah. of filmmaking that we're in, where it's more like from the studio that brought you rather than from the yeah, director yeah, of. Yeah, um, the, there's no the one that... Era. Yeah, there's no one that has the pull like Nolan does. No, no one. I mean, he can sell out cinemas based on his name alone um and no one is doing it like him based on his name alone and barbie's name alone to be honest 
Yes. I mean, um, Greta Gerwig is is becoming a household name. Yeah. And she's becoming the next big director. Yeah, yeah, but yeah, she's definitely. not quite there yet. I think Barbie yeah. is what will make her that. I yeah, don't yeah, think definitely. that Lady Bird and Little Women made her a household name. I think Barbie will make her a household I name. Think I think her people... next film, she will have a similar pull to Nolan. Not on the same level, but she will have a similar pull where people will go, oh, it's the new Greta Gerwig film. Let's go and watch that. She made Barbie. I think we're at kind of the same point in terms of her career as that Nolan was kind of like, like 2008 or something. Batman. Yeah. Like yeah. I think, I think this, you know, in, in 10, 15 years, she'll maybe probably be the biggest director in the world or one of the biggest directors in the world. Uh, but we're kind of yeah. slowly approaching that now. Um, yeah. Again, will she direct Avengers secret wars? <laughs> most likely. Um, <laughs> I'm looking, I've just, this is a bit uh, kind of apropos of nothing. Um, but, you know, I was looking at the ratings of the two films on Letterboxd and Oppenheimer has a 4.4 and um, yeah. Barbie has a 4.2. So I think if you're talking about the Letterboxd to- top 250 films, I think maybe Barbie will sneak in towards the, the end. Um, but um, Oppenheimer should kind of be in the in the 30s or something. But I was just looking yeah. at the, top, the Letterboxd top 250. And, you know, for so long, yeah. it was Parasite, obviously, number one. And then it was everything everywhere has overtaken it. Um Parasite's at six now, right? It's the sixth film, which wow. is mad because it's like that for so long that was like one, and um, fucking everything ever all at once is number seventy six. Damn, things change, don't they? That's People wild. really, it's like it's that. I remember, one I remember when I first. When I first watched that film, people tweeted like, "Oh, make sure you enjoy that before um, like Twitter Twitter decides it's shit." And I was thinking like, "No, everyone loves it. Like that won't happen." But it actually has happened. Like everyone's like looked back and like eh, everything ever was like okay, but like yeah, everyone wild. thought it was the best thing they'd ever seen when it came out. It's wild, isn't it? Mm. And the number one film is Harakiri, the um, the Kobayashi film. Which I've oh seen. right, um, I haven't yeah. either. And 12 Angry Men's third. Weirdly, have you seen that like, everyone's watching 12 Angry Men now? Yeah, it's, I don't know why. I think but I'm here someone it. uploaded it like n- n- like minute by minute on TikTok and it got really popular. Oh, right. That's yeah. amazing. Yeah. Maybe TikTok good. That's amazing. Did you see that? Um, yeah. Did you see that they're rebranding Twitter to X? Yeah. What ridiculous. That's a bizarre how ridiculous choice. How stupid is that? It's really stupid. <laughs> okay. Um, that's pretty much everything. Um, man, yeah, that that's like Barbara big, and Homer over with. That was big, man. That It was. Two of the biggest films of the year, really. Um, what's, what's, yeah. what's next? Two, big, what's... two of the biggest films of the decade. Yeah, yeah, easily. So far, definitely. Um, yeah. What's what's next, then? What's what's next week? What's, what's, I have no idea. What's coming out soon? I actually don't know. Let me have a little quick peek guys uh talk to me is coming out on friday i think um yeah the meg 2 the meg 2 yeah i feel like Grand after Turismo. after this have we got like nothing good coming out that's that's sad yeah wow that's um, sad yeah coming soon it's the like coming film films 2023 that is bizarre so we'll just do sound of freedom next week that'll be it we'll just do that yeah. Okay, um, thank you very much for listening, guys. And this has been Barbenheimer. Yes, thank you. Um, yeah, it has been Barbenheimer. It's been a pleasure. So, um, if you want to follow us on individually on Twitter, that's at Sandwich Media and Lewis J. On R. X. On X, sorry. And um, 
You can follow us on X at Now Showing Pod. You can find us on Letterbox at Sam Houston and uh, Lewis JWR, uh, respectively. Um, if you like the podcast, the best thing you can do to help us is give us a five star rating on our Apple Podcasts or Spotify or Google Podcasts, whatever your podcasts, uh, or tell all of your friends about the podcast. Um, yeah, thank you very much for listening. Uh, we'll see you next time. Goodbye. Bye.